we're looking for a better world. But what do we see? Poverty, hatred and misery. So much money spent on war when so many on this earth are so helplessly poor. The unelected president sits at his desk. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. Today marks the first installment of a series of podcasts I will be hosting titled the 9-11 Bulletin. This will be a special series that will be running concurrently along with other regular Media Roots Radio episodes. We're going to start off the 9-11 Bulletin series by focusing in on why the 9-11 Commission was essentially the Bush administration investigating itself, and also how the Bush administration refused to act or respond to numerous warnings, not just the August 6th PDB memo that you often hear about in the news. Joining me on this discussion today is a very special guest, John Gold. John Gold has been a 9-11 truth and justice seeker since 2003 never giving up on spreading his core message that we were, quote, lied to about what happened on September 11, 2001. John was inspired by the 9-11 victims' family members, especially the story of the Jersey Girls, a group of four 9-11 widows who were instrumental in creating the pressure that resulted in the 9-11 commission. His tireless research skills have equipped him with an encyclopedic knowledge of what actually happened on 9-11. Drawing from sources not from the so-called conspiracy culture, but from authors like Paul Thompson, Philip Shannon, Kevin Fenton, or 9-11 victims' family members like Lori Van Alken or Bob McElvain. At one point in 2011, in Washington, D.C., John dedicated an act of civil disobedience to the Jersey Girls by handcuffing himself to the White House fence. He was arrested by the Secret Service moments later. John has written articles for 9-11 blogger Cindy Sheehan's Soapbox and has also written a full-length book titled 9-11 Truther, The Fight for Peace, Justice, and Accountability. John has appeared on Abby's television show Breaking the Set and Project Censored on KPFA. He has also appeared on The Opie and Anthony Show, The Mike Malloy Show, Roseanne's Radio Show, Deadline Live with Jack Blood, The Boiling Frogs Podcast with Sybil Edmonds, and many others. John has also put together an incredibly useful archive of rare 9-11 related videos on his YouTube channel, many of which I've never seen posted anywhere else on the internet. He also wrote a very comprehensive fact sheet called The Facts Speak for Themselves, which compiles a list of undeniable facts that contradict what we were told happened on 9-11. If you want to skip directly to our discussion about 9-11, go to about 12 and a half minutes into the podcast. How are you doing, John? Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me on Meteor Roots. Yeah, it's good to finally have you on. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. You've always been one of my most favorite 9-11 researchers because you, you stick squarely to the facts. You've butted heads with quite a few people in the so-called movement um, for not subscribing to the full gamut of what is you know what most people think of when they think of quote-unquote 9-11 truth. But why don't you give us a little bit of a backstory on how you got started doing this? What differentiates you from other so-called truthers? 
Um, because a lot of people, when they hear the term 9-11 truth or 9-11 conspiracy, they automatically assume that someone's an anti-Semite or that they believe that the buildings were exploded. You fall very outside of that paradigm. So I wanted, I just, you know, speak a little bit about that and, and in general, your backstory of how you got here. Well, there's a few things to address. Um, as, as far as the headbutting goes and, and not subscribing to every theory known to man put out there by the 9-11 truth movement, I, I just want to say that it's human nature to theorize about things when those who refuse to answer your questions refuse to answer your questions. Those who should be answering your questions don't. You know, when they're not answering them, it's human nature to theorize as to the reasons why. But I, I found, you know, when people put theories out there uh, and there's contradictory information to those theories, that, you know, it just gives ammunition to debunkers and so forth to, to try and discredit us. So I, I don't put forward theories that have a lot of contradictory information uh, to them. Um, you talked about how when people hear the, the phrase 9-11 truther, you know, they're automatically turned off where they think that you automatically subscribe to every theory put forward in the last 12 years. And a lot of that has to do with the corporate media and also debunkers. Um, and how they have fought very hard over the years to portray us in a certain light. Um, and they latched on to the phrase truther. I, I'm the one who coined the phrase 9-11 truther. So, you know, I get to decide its meaning <laughs> and not the corporate media. But, you know, they lazily latched on to the phrase truther and you have used that over the years to you know to to screw us um and i apologize for that it was never my intention when i first coined the phrase i was on howard stern's bulletin board in 2004 after he posted a video to his website questioning the 9-11 attacks. Everybody who questioned 9-11, you know, flocked to his website to post information. Which and video did he post, by the way? He posted a, sh a shitty one, excuse my language, <laughs> in plain sight. Okay, that was, uh, that seems to be the lot of people's first, first exposure to that kind of thing. And admittedly, including myself, that was, that was the first thing that I had seen, um, I think back in 2004 or some, sometime around there. But continue, that, that's well, not really important. Yeah, on Howard's board, somebody came to me and they said, man, I'm getting so much, so much flack for, for posting this information. And I tried to be, you know, tried to give him some kind of inspirational thought. You know, I said, you know, you're a 9-11 truther, you're doing the right thing or something to that effect. And I got 9-11 truther from the phrase 9-11 truth, which was originally coined by uh, Nicholas Levis, I believe. Um, and I just said that we're 9-11 truthers. And I got that. You know, I live in Pennsylvania, and Quakers are very famous in Pennsylvania. And I thought of the term Quaker, and I just applied it to truther. 
or 9-11 truth and got that phrase. But the definition, as I believe it to be, in my mind, uh, and this is what I wrote, and this was cited by the New York Times, quote, a 9-11 truther is someone who fights alongside the family members seeking truth and accountability for the 9-11 and attacks, for the 9-11 attacks. In my mind, a 9-11 truther is someone who fights for the sick and dying 9-11 first responders who need health care desperately. In my mind, a 9-11 truther is someone who does not like how the day of 9-11 is being used to inflict pain and suffering around the world and is trying to stop it. Stop it by using the truth, something we have been denied by our government regarding the 9-11 attacks. And that's the essential definition of what a 9-11 truther is. But according to the corporate media, who have spent the last seven or eight years in attack mode, you know, they've made anyone called the 9-11 truther the equivalent of a baby killer or a dog torturer, you know, in, in the mind of many people. Yeah, or even a or even a terrorist, as we saw recently when various people were sort of blaming the Boston bombing marathon attacks on you know, subversive, uh, influential conspiracy theories on the, on, you know, that the Sarnev brothers were interested in, including 9-11 conspiracies. Well, so, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of times over the years, there was somebody, uh, the Pentagon shooter, he shot a couple of bullets at the Pentagon and they tried to link him, I think, to 9-11 truth activism. When there was a shooter who went into the Holocaust Museum and killed someone, Glenn Beck spent a lot of time trying to tie, the, you know, he even said that that guy was a hero of nine of people of the 9-11 truth movement. Oh, and, it, you know, <laughs> they did a lot of things like that over the years. Yeah. The, the one thing they, ne they never did, really, is give attention to the 9-11 family members who were asking questions, you know, like the September 11th advocates um, or the Jersey Girls, whatever you want to call them, they have put forward so many press releases over the years openly questioning the 9-11 Commission, things we were told about 9-11, and none of that stuff was was jumped on by those who were attacking, you know, us. So, yeah. They got, I mean, from what I remember, they got sort of like almost like a tokenistic media, um, a few media spots. Like I, there was one on Chris Matthews where they had a, a relatively short segment where they kind of you know said their their point of view um but yeah barely any any media attention and i wanted to get you to back up just a little bit because i've 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 heard you know i know that you've been in in this realm for much longer than most other people who are now in in this realm but i wanted to know if there was anything that you can point to like a specific event or anything specific in the immediate wake of 9-11 or in the following years that made you take the direction that you've taken? Like, was, was there anything specific, like a one, one thing that really jumped out at you that made you um, want to do further investigation and research yeah. into this? Absolutely. And that, that's one of the differences between me and most other activists or advocates for 9-11 justice. That's what I call people, and I refer to myself now, I say I'm an advocate for 9-11 justice, simply because the phrase 9-11 truther was so tarnished. Um, very, It's very easy for me to point out that moment. After 9-11, um, 
you may remember, we were told repeatedly over and over again by politicians and pundits that we had no idea that this was going to happen, that just this took us completely by surprise, that there were no warnings, you know, that nobody had any idea that this was going to happen. Um, a failure of imagination yeah, was a talking was a point. failure to, quote unquote, connect the dots and, and, and whatever. But no, actually, there were no dots at that point. It was just we had no idea. Yeah. So, in well, in January of 2002, there was a report by the by CNN that said Dick Cheney and George Bush went to Tom Daschle's office, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time, and asked him to quote unquote limit the scope of the congressional inquiry. And I didn't really, you know, think much about it. Because their argument was it would take resources away from the war on terror yeah, and stuff like that. And, you know, I was curious. I mean, why would the, the president and vice president of all people wanna, would want to limit the scope of this investigation? Then we found out later that, that they actually asked Tom Daschle um, not to investigate the attacks at all. And I also just want you to clarify... Cheney's statement, no investigation whatsoever, not merely a private investigation. But I had thought earlier that he wanted to keep make sure this was kept, you know, a private intelligence community investigation. Well, the, uh, the impression that the vice president left with me is that he would prefer no investigation. Uh, and then when we pursued the matter, I told him that uh, we, we had no choice but to move forward with the intelligence committee investigation as is now occurring. Which is which is interesting because in that press conference that you put on YouTube, it's it's blatantly obvious that that's what he's saying. But right. but one of the reporters, I guess, that heard him say that decided to almost weaken. I mean, to like sort of um, make a little bit less. I don't know how would you describe that. They they reported it. What newspaper we were saying this was in? It was in- CNN that originally reported that. The president and vice president asked uh, Tom Daschle to "quote unquote" limit the scope of the congressional inquiry. So it's, it was like a much more sanitized version of what he actually alleged that they told him that they wanted absolutely no investigation of nine eleven. Uh, absolutely. So after that happened, I I started to look a little bit more into the news regarding nine eleven, and then I believe in May of two thousand two. Um, News of the August 6th PDB, the presidential daily briefing, was leaked. And it was, you know, the New York Post had this massive front page headline that said, Bush knew. Yep. And I started to think back to all of those times we were told that there were no warnings, that nobody had any idea, that no one in government could possibly imagine something like this happening. I don't think anybody could have predicted that these people would take an airplane and slam it into the World Trade Center, take another one and slam it into the Pentagon. So we were essentially lied to. I mean, the August 6th PDB talked about people um, taking pictures of, of buildings in New York. It talked about hijackings or other types of attacks. And I think that's the exact phrase used. Um, and it talked about 70 
current FBI investigations related to Osama bin Laden currently taking place within the United States. And so, I mean, that was a lie we were lied to about 9-11, and I was furious because I fell into that patriotic binge that a lot of um, Americans did. We wanted revenge. We wanted to bomb the shit out of the Middle East. You know, in my mind back then, all Arabs were terrorists. Unfortunately, I, I watched... Fox News. I was never into the news at all until 9-11. And then when 9-11 happened, I started watching, you know, Fox News because they were the red, whitest, and bluest. They, <laughs> they seemed to be the most patriotic out of all of the, the corporate media. So I was being brainwashed by Fox. Anyway, when I found out we were lied to, I was off to the races. And then in on June 11th, 2002... Uh, 9-11 family members got together in Washington, D.C., and they held a rally um, for the creation of an independent, supposed nonpartisan Blue Ribbon Commission, which eventually turned into the 9-11 Commission. You know, why would the family members have to fight for a, an investigation, a real investigation? Because the investigations that were going on at the time there's something from the FBI called the Pent Bomb Investigation. Um, you know, the Congressional Inquiry was already underway. Um, they, you know, the Congressional Inquiry only looked at intelligence agencies. It didn't look at other things like NORAD, and so it was very limited. Um, let's let's backtrack a little bit to. Um, we're going to get into the like the different investigations a little later, but I wanted to backtrack to that infamous August 6 PDB memo, right. which was titled, and correct me if I'm wrong on the title, that it was titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in the United States. Correct. The August 6 PDB warned against possible attacks in this country, and I ask you whether you recall the title of that PDB? I believe the title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. Uh, uh, now, the, uh, the PDB... You. No, Mr. Benveniste, you... I will get into I, the... I would like to, to finish my point. A lot of people, even Fahrenheit 9-11, a lot of sort of more the mainstream criticisms of the Bush administration only point to that memo. And... I wanted you to go into the idea a little bit that that memo is merely the tip of the iceberg of the actual amount of warnings they got, not just internally, like presidential daily briefings, but warnings actually from other intelligence agencies in foreign countries like Russia, um, even Israel uh, apparently warned them. So give me a little bit of more detail on those other, some of those other warnings. Right. The August 6th PDB did not come in a vacuum. I mean, at the time, um, there was so much threat warnings. I mean, they talked about how there was people in government who were suffering from what's called warning fatigue <laughs> because there were so many warnings coming in um, from different countries. 
Mr. Eichenwald, in reporting for this new book, says it was not just that famous bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. presidential daily briefing that the Bush administration received and ignored less than a month before 9-11, excuse me, just over a month before 9-11. It was a whole series of presidential daily briefs, all through May and June and July of 2001, all warning of a planned major strike by al-Qaeda in the United States, which then, of course, ultimately happened in September of that year. Paul Thompson diligently, you know, collected many of the the warnings that we received, and he put them together on on the timeline that's available at HistoryCommons.org. Um, and I think there were fourteen different countries that were giving us um, very specific warnings. Um, Putin himself warned Bush personally. Yeah. And in, in, the, in these warnings, um, you know, a lot of the argument you'll hear is that, well, they were so vague, there was no necessarily no time window. They knew that there might be a potential attack, but they didn't know where and when. But when I hear things like, I think it might have been in a, a French uh, um, government warning that said that they were going to be potential hijackings of domestic airlines in the United States. I mean, that seems like quite specific information that. At the very least, you would imagine that somebody in the FAA, you know, uh, would have acted on that and added an extra layer of security screening. You know, we've taught you and I have talked about this before. If they were getting warning fatigue, as they've said, what did they actually do um, in response to all these warnings? Because, you know, a lot of people will say that they got so many warnings, they didn't know what to do. But what did they do? Um, well, it's been reported over and over again that they did virtually nothing, that they, they did absolutely nothing. They didn't, you know, warn. Um, there, there's a whole list. This is from uh, 9-11 Commissioner Bob Carey, um, and it says, quote, By the way, there's a credible case that the president's own negligence prior to 9-11, at least in part, contributed to the disaster in the first place. In the summer of 2001, the government ignored repeated warnings by the CIA, ignored and didn't do anything to harden our border security, didn't do anything to harden airport security, didn't do anything to engage local law enforcement, didn't do anything to round up INS and consular offices, say we have to shut this down and didn't warn the american people um it goes on to say the famous presidential daily briefing on august 6th we say in the report that the briefing officers believe that there was a considerable sense of urgency and it was current so there was a case to be made that wasn't made the president says if i had only known that 19 islamic men would come into the United States of, of America and on the morning of September 11th hijack four American aircraft, fly two in the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and one into an unknown location uh, in Pennsylvania that crashed in Shanksville. I would have moved heaven and earth, he, he said. That's what he said, Mr. President. You don't need to know that. This is an Islamist jihadist movement that has been organized since the early 1990s declared war on the United States twice in 96 and 98. And this is the really big sentence. Mr. President, you knew they were in the United States. You were warned by the CIA. You knew in July they were inside the United States. You were told again by briefing officers in August that it was a, that it was a dire threat. 
didn't do anything to harden our border security, didn't do anything to harden airport security, didn't do anything to engage local law enforcement, didn't do anything to round up INS and consular officers and say we have to shut this down, and didn't warn the American people. What did you do? Nothing, so far as we can see. 9-11 Commissioner Bob Kerry. When did he say that? Was it after the 9-11 Commission was, was over? November 8th, 2004. So after the elections. We took an oath not to talk about during the campaign. I think correctly so. Now it's beyond the campaign. So the promise I had to keep this out of the campaign is over. Well, At least it I mean, was reported on by CNN on November 8th, 2004. I mean, that statement in and of itself is, is so damning just alone that it's, I guess what's really astonishing to me is that a lot of the debunkers will will so easily dismiss these warnings, um, you know, mm -hmm. saying things like, well, hindsight is twenty twenty, mm -hmm. and um, and you know, they just they they couldn't communicate with each other even though they had all this information. I'm just it, it's I guess it's just shocking to me because I mean there's a quote from a nine eleven commissioner himself saying that they literally did nothing um right. as far as he can see so that's i guess that's just something that you really never hear mentioned is that you know you always hear this argument that well what could they have done you know what what were they supposed to do blah 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 but i mean the counter to that is well what did they do and they apparently didn't do anything um so i think i mean that in and of itself seems like a really important <laughs> fact um to look well, at it's criminal negligence. If they had very specific information, and remember now, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, in November 2007, there was a conference in West Hartford, Connecticut. And as a surprise, one of the Jersey girls showed up, Patty Casaza. Um, she surprised all of us. And she was kind enough to get on the stage with Bob McElveen and talk a little bit about the 9-11 Commission. And she said that they met whistleblowers on the side of the road in Maryland, mostly because the 9-11 the Commission wasn't subpoenaing people, subpoenaing whistleblowers. And the information that these whistleblowers had, apparently, showed that this government, according to Patty, knew the day, the target, and the type of attack. Wow. Wow. So, and, the, and these whistleblowers n have never come public with their information in terms of like you know um saying who they are and what role in the government they were in no and you know unfortunately and i i have a list and this is one of the issues with the 9-11 commission i have a list of whistleblowers that were either ignored and censored by the 9-11 commission um and that list has grown in recent weeks you know thomas drake uh, NSA whistleblower, William Binning, NSA whistleblower, they talk a little bit about 9-11 and they say that the NSA had information that could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. They weren't interviewed by the 9-11 Commission so far as I could see. And, we'll, and we're going to go into in more, much more detail what, what information the NSA is on record of, of uh, actually having before 9-11, which they had... I mean, it, that, that also is, astonishes me is how much information they had about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden leading up to 9-11. I wanted to know, you know, that you hear this phrase, the incompetence theory, and we were just discussing the, 
sort of the problematic language of incompetence covers a lot of ground. Um, you know, it can mean anything from, um, you know, being literally um, just dumb, bumbling, not knowing what to do with the information, or it could be, you know, standing aside and letting something take place. Um, we can't, as you said, we can't really prove, we don't have evidence to prove criminal involvement of the Bush administration necessarily direct criminal involvement. But you've raised the idea that, that it's pretty clear um, from all the evidence that there is a, there was a level of criminal negligence involved. Um, but, you know, one of the most common things you hear now, and, and they've, they've sort of revised the official story, you know, a few times um, since the 9-11 attacks. And what sort of came out in the end was that um, the real reason that 9-11 took place is, be- is not because they didn't have the information, but it's because they did- weren't able to connect the dots. And, then, and, and part of that reason is because all these different agencies in the U.S. government, what is the word, so um, in their own bubble, I guess, and they had loyalties only to each other or in, inside the, that specific agency. It's like the CIA wouldn't share information with the FBI or the NSA wouldn't share information with the CIA um, or the FBI. Do you, do you think that that's true, that that was the main <laughs> the main reason that 9-11 took place is because these intelligence agencies weren't sharing their information? Well, you know, this brings up a few topics. If individuals within certain alphabet agencies made decisions to withhold information from other organizations that could have done something with that information to stop the attacks, then I want to know who these individuals were that made the, these decisions to withhold information and hold them accountable. You know, accountability applies to both incompetence and criminality. Yeah. Um, so when you call for accountability, you know, it applies, as I said, to both. Now, imagine if you had a business and somebody in your business lost a million dollars. Would you reward that, that person or would you fire them? And you would hold them accountable. You would fire them. You would not reward them. And that's a lot. We saw that a lot after 9-11. Individuals that should have been held accountable, but instead were rewarded and promoted. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that if you hold someone accountable, let's say in the lower levels of government, let's say you didn't do your job, therefore we're going to hold you accountable. I think what would happen in a lot of cases is that those individuals being held accountable would start to talk and start to say, what do you mean I didn't do my job? I did my job. It was so-and-so that blocked me from doing more. You know, that's what, what I mean. That's why I think a lot of people were not held accountable because, you know, they, they would start to talk. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going to speculate a little bit here, um, myself, uh, that it seems to me that the, that this whole idea that these intelligence agencies weren't communicating with each other and that's, and if they had communicated with each other and shared their information, then possibly the attacks could have been prevented. It seems to me that that is almost a way to cover for the idea that at some point individuals within these 
intelligence agencies like George Tennant or different people, individuals in the NSA or the CIA would eventually come out and or or leak information saying that they had pre 9-11 foreknowledge. But the whole idea that, oh, well, the agencies weren't sharing the information with each other sort of covers all bases in that regard, that no matter how much information, say, let's imagine that a memo leaked from the CIA saying that, you know, the CIA had infiltrated or, or had someone inside, um, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda or something like that, um, then the, the U.S. government could just simply say, well, the CIA didn't share that with, you know, the other, the other agencies that wouldn't have been able to take action. So it seems like it, it's kind of designed as a catch-all excuse that, you know, unless we have some kind of smoking gun evidence that it will always counteract, you know, anything, anything leaked from any of those individual agencies. Well, but again, it goes back to my point. If, if individuals made decisions or blocked individuals from doing their job, then those individuals need to be held accountable. So let's hold them accountable. I mean... <laughs> it's it, it's just very easy. Let's let's just hold these people accountable. It's not it's not rocket science. And you know, this is I'm going to read you a quote from Kristen Breitweiser's book called Wake Up Call. And Kristen Breitweiser is who? Just for the audience out there listening, Kristen Breitweiser is one of the four Jersey girls that fought for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, she lost her, her husband, Ronald, on 9-11. It, the Jersey girls were made up of Kristen Bratweiser, Lori Van Auken, Mindy Kleinberg, and Patty Casaza. They each lost their husbands on 9-11, and they were essentially responsible for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. Anyway, here's a, a quote from her book. The widows and I would have frequent conference calls with the commission staff, but those two began to feel empty. Each investigative team was kept insular and was allowed to look only at its particular avenue of investigation. In other words, no one segment of the staff was seeing the entire picture of what was being investigated. It was all fractured. Zelikow had designed it that way, because the course of the investigation was easier to contain. At least, that is how it, it appeared to me. Ironically, the official excuse for 9-11 was, quote, nobody connected the dots, end quote, and yet Zelikow was set up, and yet Zelikow set up the commission's own investigation into 9-11 in such a way that no single investigator could t feasibly connect the dots a failure that occurred on 9-11. Zelikow did the same thing when he wrote the 9-11 Independent Commission's final report. The book is choppy and disconnected. It's confusing as the storyline jumps back and forth through facts and history, making it very hard to keep track of the mounting failures that keep adding up, end quote. And going back to what you said uh, a few minutes back about the people that should be held accountable. We know now people's names who, who should have been held accountable. Um, I mean, for instance, people who are lesser known figures in the government, such as Rich Blee. And yeah. I remember hearing something, I think it was actually in Bill Shannon's 9-11 um, commission book, and you can refresh my memory on this, that, that someone would 
continually brief or was trying to brief John Ashcroft um, about the importance of all these Al Qaeda um, and bin Laden warnings. And I guess it got so heated at one point that he almost got in a physical confrontation with John Ashcroft. And, and they actually, um, you know, people who were in the room thought that they were going to th- start throwing fists at each other. Pickard opened the next briefing on July 12, 2001, with the latest on the CIA warnings about an Al-Qaeda attack. We're at a very high level of chatter that something big is about to happen, Pickard began. The CIA is very alarmed. He had barely begun the presentation when Ashcroft jumped in angrily. I don't want to hear about that anymore, he said. There's nothing I can do about that. Pickard was dumbfounded. The Attorney General didn't want to hear anything more about threats of an imminent terrorist attack? I don't want you to ever talk to me about Al-Qaeda, about these threats, Ashcroft said. I don't want to hear about Al-Qaeda anymore. Pickard thought the situation was absurd. Ashcroft was not interested in terrorist threats? Shouldn't the FBI and the other law enforcement agencies that answered to Ashcroft, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the Border Patrol, the Marshal Service, be readying themselves for the possibility of an attack? Pickard was furious. I wanted you to maybe to, to go in a little bit of detail about who Rich Blee is, who some other people are in the government, you know, including maybe John Ashcroft, uh, Dick Cheney, what role they played in obstructing information from being shared or even, you know, just sitting on warnings and things like that. I think with the scenario you just described are actually two different instances, at least I think so. Um, there was a time when David Shippers, who was the counsel who, you know, did the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, he was in charge, the head lawyer in charge against Clinton during the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. He heard from FBI agents that an attack was coming and he was trying to get in touch with Ashcroft and couldn't. And then I think there was an instance where someone approached Ashcroft um, saying that, you know, about Al-Qaeda, and he didn't want to hear about it. Like, that was the quote. Uh, Ashcroft didn't want to hear about it. Now, there... Like, he didn't even want him to talk to, to brief him. He just told them, basically, essentially to shut right. up. Exactly. Now, I think that's a different instance than what you're talking about with regards to Rich Blee. Rich Blee was the, the head of Alex Station. He took over after Michael Scheuer, um uh, I don't remember if he resigned or, you know, was moved to a different post, but essentially he took he took over for um, Alex Station, and Alex Station was C- the CIA's Bin Laden group. They were the ones responsible for tracking down Bin Laden and so forth. And there was an instance, I, I don't remember exactly what happened. There was an instance between an FBI agent and somebody in CIA at Alex Station. They got into a very uh, big argument about sharing certain information, I think, with the FBI. I, I don't remember verbatim. My recommendation, honestly, for, for people that are interested in Rich Blee is to read Kevin Fenton's book, Disconnecting the Dots. Um, and there are individuals named in that book that should be held accountable. Uh, Tom Wilshire, Alfreda Bukowski, 
Um, Dave Frasca from the FBI's Fundamentalist Unit. Um, Michael Maltby, also from the FBI. I just asked 9-11 whistleblower Colleen Rowley. I asked her very straight out. With regards to your story, who should be held accountable in government? And she said, everyone. <laughs> and all those names you just mentioned, I mean, I haven't even heard of most of them. And I'm sure that most people never heard of any of those people before. And were any of these people, was Rich Blee or any of these other people that you mentioned, were they ever called um, to testify in front of the 9-11 Commission or the Joint Congressional Inquiry? I don't honestly remember. Well, I, I don't. I don't. I'm pretty sure Rich Blee was never mentioned until. I mean, I didn't even know anything about his involvement in it until that Richard Clark interview, right? Exactly. Where he sort of revealed that he would normally get these, you know, terrorism briefs every morning, and he was theorizing that that the only person who would have obstructed that from him um, was was the person above him i guess or not above him but uh, the person named rich blee going i feel like i'm describing this story a little inaccurately what exactly happened there that he that he he suspects that he was actually obstructing something from getting to clark that would have normally automatically gone to him is that correct basically there was a memo that the cia received that said two of the hijackers i think were in the united states and according to george tennant who testified before the joint congressional inquiry no one read that memo and there was an inspector general's report from the cia that came out that said 50 people within the the cia read this memo huh. wow uh, and that and richard clark um, wants to know why you know they lied about this memo, why certain information was kept from him, and if you remember under Clinton, he was the counterterrorism czar. He was high up there in, in I think he was one of the principals of the Clinton administration. Yeah, who, who would regularly meet with uh, the president, and then when Bush came into office, and he was demoted. Um, by Conda, I think the one who suggested that he be demoted was Philip Zelikow. Wow! Uh, during the Bush transition team, and we're going to talk a lot about him in, in a little bit. He's a he's a very important player in all of this, right? Um, uh, I remember, I, I, and I, I think Richard Clark came up with this interesting theory that he was he was openly musing that. He thought that the reason this might have been a block from him is because the CIA was performing a clandestine operation where they were potentially attempting to um, either recruit or infiltrate this this so-called sleeper cell. Right. Uh, well, they knew. Apparently, the F the CIA knew for eighteen months that these two hijackers were in the United States. These two hijackers, uh, Khalid Almidar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, um, were supposedly receiving Saudi support, um, and they are also connect connected to Prince Bandar, um, whose wife is connected to money that was given to those two hijackers. So essentially the CIA was seemingly protecting these two hijackers. I have 
thought about this a lot, and there's only one conceivable reason that I've been able to come up with. Now, there may be other reasons, but I've only been able to come up with one. When Kofor Black became the head of the counterterrorism center at CIA, he was aghast that they had no sources in Al-Qaeda. So he told me, I'm going to try to get sources in Al-Qaeda. I can understand them possibly saying, we need to develop sources inside Al-Qaeda. When we do that, we can't tell anybody about it. And I can understand them perhaps seeing these two guys show up in the United States and thinking, aha, this is our chance to flip them. This is our chance to get guys inside Al-Qaeda. And to do that, we can't tell anybody outside CIA until we got them, until they're really giving us information. If they tell the FBI, the FBI can say, no, this is in the United States. We want him. He's going to become an FBI source. And they'll botch it. So we do know that these two guys show up in Southern California, and pretty soon thereafter, they're approached by a Saudi. We know the Saudi reaches out, meets them in the restaurant, arranges housing for them, arranges payment to them, arranges to move them to San Diego. And that Saudi has connections to the Saudi government, and some people believe that guy was a Saudi intelligence officer. If we assume, for the sake of argument, that the Saudi intelligence guy in Southern California was the handler for these two, then presumably he would have been reporting to the CIA Los Angeles station. There was a strong relationship between the CIA director and the uh, Minister of Intelligence in Saudi Arabia. Well, after that, the trail goes cold about... And I think it was Stephen Butler of the FBI who said that if the CIA had given him information about those two hijackers, that 9-11 would have been shut down. Stephen Butler was the handler for the FBI informant that these two hijackers were living with. Uh, Abdus Sattar Sheikh, um, the Bush administration, I think, prevented Abdus Sattar Sheikh from testifying before the Joint Congressional Inquiry. Um, I think they tried to get Stephen Butler uh, not to testify in front of the um, Congressional Inquiry, but they finally managed to get him in front. And when he did testify, he said he could have stopped 9-11 if the CIA had shared the information. Now, it's just a theory that they were trying to flip these terrorists. And we don't know, I honestly, I don't know, you know, we have this system of Saudi support going to two of the hijackers, possibly more of the hijackers. Um, and we only know about these two hijackers and the CIA protecting them. Where Was the CIA prote protecting more of the hijackers? I, I don't know. You know, we only know about this instance. Yeah, and... If I remember correctly, Senator Bob Graham was the one who tried to, during the joint congressional inquiry, was was um, trying to get these documents that showed um, that there were Saudi funding 
um, for these two hijackers. And then he he was was trying to get that FBI informant you're referring to to testify, but he was obstructed at every level trying to accomplish that. And then right. eventually, um, the White House actually started an investigation on some of the people in the congressional joint right. inquiry for having access to this classified information that that sort of blew the whole thing open that saudi arabian intelligence was possibly funding some of these hijackers and when most people say oh well you know i i remember hearing you know in the months after 9 11 there was a lot of talk about saudi arabia that something like was it 15 or or 14 of the 19 hijackers were saudi were ethnically saudi um and i think for most people that's where that thought ends you know but I don't think most people also understand that there is a direct clear connection between um, people related to the Saudi royal family's funding um, at least two of the hijackers. You know, it could be said that the CIA protected two of the hijackers that were involved in the 9-11 attacks. (laughs) I mean, that's a very simple statement. But that's essentially what they were doing by withholding that information that they were in the United States. But the CIA wasn't the only agency aware that they were in the United States. The NSA was also aware, apparently, that they were in the United States. And I think the FBI was aware that some of these people were in the United States, you know, with regards to the Massawi uh, ordeal. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was detained for what was it an immigration violation when he was taking flying lessons and he um he was acting super suspicious and he like said that he didn't want to learn how to land the plane and stuff like that and people were blocking access to his laptop you know they were trying to get access to his laptop and people were blocking them from getting that information and this is all part of Colleen Raleigh's story and this is how how many months was this like in August of 2001 that he was detained? Yes. I believe it was in August 2001. And during his they call it a trial but a 9/11 family member Lori Van Auken actually corrected me and it was actually a sentencing phase. It wasn't an actual trial. Oh, it wasn't. It, I didn't I didn't realize that. Right. So a lot of things came out and Harry Samet, who was an FBI agent, uh, testified during those hearings saying that he tried 70 different times to warn people about, uh, I, I guess it was the hijackers, and he was blocked every time. And who, is, who is he? Harry Samet, S-A-M-I-T. Is he government or... He was FBI. He was FBI. Um, and I mean, it just seems strange to me that, um, I mean, that it wasn't even, it was like the only arrest or detention made previous to 9-11 wasn't because the FBI or the CIA was hot on this guy's trail and they finally found him, tracked him down and threw him in jail. It was that he was, he was just acting so suspicious and ridiculous at this flight school that they called the police on him. Right, exactly. And, and, and go ahead. Uh, and going back to what you said, that, that these two hijackers, they knew their names. Um, they were possibly even, the CIA was even trying to flip them. The FBI knew they were in the country. It seems so simple to me <clears throat> that, you know, 
the CIA wouldn't even have had to tell other government agencies necessarily who these guys were. They could have just put out a memo or a top-down order going to the FAA saying, do not let these two passengers board an airplane. I mean, it, that in and of itself seems really strange that they didn't even do that. But I think at one point, weren't they put on the no-fly list? It should be said with regards to those two hijackers that they were even in the phone book. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the we're going into a lot of obscure names now. And, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the people at the very top, the, the people in the White House and the Bush administration. I've always personally wondered um, that it just doesn't make sense to me why Bush would have even have gone to that school in Florida that morning after he had already learned of the first plane impact on the World Trade Center. Because you would imagine that if they were getting all of these warnings that immediately when that happened, immediately when Bush or anybody in the White House saw on television that the World Trade Center had just been hit by a plane, that they would have intuitively known, oh my God, this is the warning that we've been getting and it's happening now. Instead, they all act like when they first saw that, the first plane impact, that they all thought it was either a bad pilot or a horrible accident. I had, was sitting outside uh, the, the, the classroom waiting to go in and I saw an airplane hit the tower of a, of a t you know, the TV was obviously on. And I, I used to fly myself and I said, well, there's one terrible pilot. And uh, it said it must have been a, a horrible accident. I just find that so unbelievable. I mean, it, it don't, to me, it seems like they were coached. And I, I just want to know what your thoughts are on, on their sort of incredulous disbelief. They're feigning this disbelief about what their reaction was when this was all unfolding. Right. And it should be noted that um, a monograph was released by the 9-11 Commission that talked about how the FAA received 52 warnings about Al-Qaeda um, in the months before 9-11. And, I, you know, that's all part of the intelligence apparatus. The, the FAA doesn't have their own intelligence agency. They, they get information from other intelligence agencies. So there had already been information filtered down to the, the agency that could have actually prevented people from boarding airplanes, and, and somehow that still didn't prevent any of them right I, I mean as far as we know every single hijacker that tried to board an airplane and get on a plane was able to yep all right with regards to bush in the classroom <clears throat> if they had all of this information um instead of sitting there in the classroom for seven minutes the president should have gotten up and said you know let's go take care of this this is this is what we've been warned about instead he sat there now it's unclear when he got to the school as to whether or not he knew one plane or two planes had struck the towers um it was supposedly after he left the hotel there was a report that he he got the first warning of the first plane hitting and you would think something would click in his mind after getting something like the August 6th PDB that talked about hijackings or other types of attacks, that something would have clicked. 
you know, but instead he stayed in the classroom for seven minutes after being informed that America was under attack. And the interesting thing about that, or one of the interesting things, is that that school was five miles away from an international airport. So <clears throat> how did they know that somebody wasn't going to hijack a plane from that airport and crash it into this school that he, it was highly publicized that he was going to be there? You know, yeah, in, yeah. They did not. They did nothing to get him to a safe location for at least well over a half an hour. Despite the fact that both Twin Towers had been hit and another plane was in the air and suspected to be hijacked, he remained at the school for a half hour. Yeah, that's something that, um, you know, in Fahrenheit 9-11, I think that was one of the first times most people, most people found out that Bush sat there for seven minutes. But what they don't say in Fahrenheit 9-11 is that he continued to stay in the school for over a half an hour and even did a live speech from the school that was broadcast live on television. Exactly. And, you know, I think when he was sitting there with the children, Ari Fleischer held up a note saying something to the effect, I, I don't remember exactly, but it essentially told him to stay there. Yeah. Like to, to stay there and, and, and don't do anything. Now, my thought with regard, I always try to put myself in the situation of the president. If I was the president and I was sitting in a classroom and I was told by my chief of staff that America is under attack, my response would be, what do you mean America's under attack? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? I would, I would excuse myself from the children and then run into another room and be like, what do you mean America's under attack? Yeah. Who, who, who attacked us? How did they attack us? Where did they attack us? I mean, it it is incredibly odd that, I mean, there's so many things that you can speculate about, about why he sat there and didn't ask him anything, but it's, it's extremely bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, Bill Maher, someone that I, I mostly disagree with on, on almost anything, raised a pretty valid point years ago. I mean, he, he was going around saying that that in and of itself was an impeachable offense which is true i mean i i agree with that and then he also said you know he didn't president bush didn't know if this was a nuclear attack um i mean it i mean for all he knew it could have been a nuclear attack so it's just it is so weird um that he wouldn't have responded immediately and his excuse was oh he didn't want to scare the children i mean that it just seems ridiculous to me well if you didn't want to scare the children you didn't seem to mind um putting you know basically a crosshairs on you everybody knew you were there you didn't want to scare the children but at the same time you didn't care endangering all of their lives apparently because for all yeah. he knew he was a target also and a plane could have crashed into the school and killed him and all the students it's it's very unclear as to whether or not he was aware that two planes hit the towers at the time he was sitting there um or whether or not he knew one and, weren't you mentioning something to me that he there's um information out there that he knew of another errant hijacked plane when he was on his way to the school or am i well, misremembering that it's it's unclear as to whether or not he was aware that one plane hit the towers or two planes hit the towers when he first got to the school he called condoleezza rice 
And, you know, all we have is their words as to what they talked about, but we honestly don't know what they talked about. And you hear Condoleezza Rice also going out there on press conferences besides her and Bush. Um, I mean, it seems like they were most likely coached on exactly what to say, but she, you know, she says a similar thing to that he does that um, there's no way they could have possibly foreseen that hijackers would use pl- airplanes as weapons on, on such a massive scale. Um, right. This this whole failure of a it's almost like the failure of imagination excuse, and um, people in the press conference were totally incredulous. I mean, they were there was even laughter in the press conference where people were like, you know, didn't didn't I think someone even asked, well, didn't Tom Clancy write a novel about this exact thing happening like three years ago? Your position is that no one in any period of time before September 11th, in any discussion of Al-Qaeda, said, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there that these people have talked about flying planes into buildings. This is absolutely right. I have not heard anybody indicate that to me, and you've heard that from the president himself. Wasn't there a widely read book, I forget the name of the novel, which described just such a thing? Had nobody in the White House read that book? (laughs) Is, Is the president at least concerned or disappointed that nobody could have thought of such an idea? It's... It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I mean, and even the you know the lone gunman um, pilot episode where it was of uh, of uh, someone hijacking a, a remote controlling a plane and flying it into the World Trade Center. I mean, these ideas were were already sort of making the rounds in popular culture um, at the time, and the Bojinka plot as well, which was a terrorist attack that was even on a more massive scale the 9-11 from what i remember about that uh, could you go into do you, do you know any details about the bojinka plot well it involved uh bombs on planes essentially yeah like simultaneous like, coordinated explosions on like something like 10 different commercial airplanes or something like that right and and even crashing a plane into the what was it the cia headquarters in virginia well there was I think there was a drill scheduled for that day that addressed that very issue, the CIA headquarters being um, hit by a hijacked plane. But there were a number of statements from individuals in government that said things like, sure, we were aware of, of that kind of situation. You know, they prepared for these kind of things. From historycommons.org, on November 6, 1999, NORAD conducts an exercise scenario based around hijackers planning to crash plane into UN headquarters in New York. That's November 99. Um, In June 2000, NORAD exercise simulates hijackers planning to crash planes into White House and Statue of Liberty. You know, so the idea that that nobody in our government could conceive of these things is absolutely preposterous. Because they did. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And I mean, I guess technically speaking, we don't know, you know, what Condi and, you know, if Condi and Bush knew about those things. But I mean, it seems extremely likely that they knew about at least the concept, you know, at the very least, the concept of a, of a terrorist using a commercial airline as a weapon, flight it into a landmark or a government building. Right. And here's another example. In October 2000, NORAD exercise includes scenarios of attempted suicide plane crashes into UN headquarters in New York. So, 
USA Today reports that in the two years before the attacks on September the 11th, NORAD conducted exercises using hijacked airliners as weapons. And one target was the World Trade Center. You know, and, and how important is it really for Bush or Condi to know about these scenarios when, you know, it sh things should have happened automatically on 9-11 that seemingly did not happen. Um, Absolutely. Like, you know, these planes were flying around for two hours. It's very unclear as to when fighters were sent up because there's contradictory information. Um, you know, debunkers will talk about the tapes, just listen to the tapes. But are those all of the tapes? Um, what tapes are you referring to? There was a, a Vanity Fair piece years ago that, that uh, supposedly released all of NORAD's tapes. Oh, okay. And that uh, and that and in some of those tapes, I I recall there was evidence in it that the drills were confusing some of the people right. that were on those tapes. Oh, there's definite uh, information out there that shows they were confused as to whether or not what was going on that day, what was transpiring were drills you know they, they didn't know i even remember there was a female voice on one of those tapes who apparently i guess she thought that the world trade center um on fire on the tv screen was was part of the drill and you can hear her saying cool when when it's happening um as if she's she's continuing to believe that as the actual attacks are unfolding that it's still the drill what oh. what was that I've never seen so much real world stuff happen during an exercise. Well, I think one of the things that was released in that Vanity Fair piece was the knowledge that there were false blips put on radar screens across the country. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the pieces of information that came out um, in that piece. Oh, oh drills. They, they had no idea that anything like that would happen. Yeah. And we heard multiple statements. I mean, there's a whole section on, on historycommons.org um, in the complete 9-11 timeline. There's an entry called 9-11 Denials. And for anybody out there listening who is unfamiliar with History Commons, I mean, it is possibly the the most thorough and amazing resource on the internet for pretty much any i mean any story involving the u.s government or foreign policy and um well paul thompson years ago um actually michael rupert did a timeline called lucy lucy you got some splaining to do and that inspired paul thompson to create the original 9-11 timeline that he created and he housed that on what was originally called cooperativeresearch.org and it eventually was renamed to historycommons.org um, but yeah the timeline was originally started by Paul Thompson and then other people over the years started adding more information and as of right now one two three four five people are managing the complete 9-11 timeline it's not just paul anymore um, yeah and and if you go to the website 
and look at the time, the nine eleven timeline. I mean, there are so many different branches that you can hone in on specifically in uh, about nine eleven, like you know the CIA's role, or or even you know there's a whole timeline on just the anthrax attacks. And um, I mean, it's 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 an incredible resource. So I recommend anybody out there um, to go there and just start digging. I mean, because there's so much stuff in there that I don't even think a lot of people in the 9-11 movement have necessarily even picked up on. It's just, that's how much information there is in there. It's, it's incredible. Right. And we were, we were talking about the 9-11 denials. Here's the very first entry. It says, quote, several U.S. officials said there was no warning in the days before the attacks that a major operation was in the works. In terms of specific warning that something of this nature was to occur, no, nothing like that. Um, Secretary of State Colin Powell states, in the first 20 hour, 24 hours of analysis, I have not seen any evidence that there was a speci- specific signal that we missed. In this case, we did not have intelligence of anything of this scope or magnitude. Um, it's, it's t- again, it sounds like carefully worded statements. It's like they always have to add on that thing at the end about um, the scope, the magnitude, we'd never seen anything like this on such a massive scale. So that right. if you, you, they're not technically lying, um, because, well, you know, I mean, it's an, it's open, let's just say it's an open for interpretation sort of a statement to make. And, you know, what's interesting is back in the 70s, um, there, there was um, an incident on September 12th, I think 1973 that there were three planes that were simultaneously simultaneously hijacked. And this is back in the 70s. To think that, you know, they never conceived of this uh, happening. I mean, that this is what they trained for. I mean, if, if we're smarter than the people in government, I mean, that's a bad thing. Well, it's absurd. I mean, because even I, I, I don't know the exact date of when the Bojinka plot was supposed to go off, but I mean... There's so many parallels between that that right. plot and 9/11. I mean, including um, them. You know, apparently the law law enforcement agencies who tracked some of these people down, they broke into one of the um, uh, you know high, hijackers' apartment buildings, and he had like a mock cockpit like built in his apartment. So, yeah, I mean, it's not even just that these people were planning to hijack planes by you know and and have and hold a gun up to the pilot's head. They were also planning to fly the planes too right and you know there were there were actually hijackings that took place from within the united states that had plans to crash into buildings i think there were three instances in 1971 db cooper hijacks northwest orient airlines flight 305 and obtains two hundred thousand dollars ransom for the release of the plane's passengers Cooper proceeds to parachute from the rear of the Boeing and is never found. Um, in February 22, 1974, Samuel Bick shot and killed Maryland Aviation Administration police officer Neil Ramsberg at BWI before storming aboard Delta Airlines flight, flight, flight 523 to Atlanta. He gained access to the cockpit while the plane was on the ground. His intentions were to assassinate President Nixon <laughs> by flying the DC-9 into the White House. Wow. Um, in 1994, FedEx Flight 705, hijacked by disgruntled employee Arbert 
Callaway uh, as it left Memphis, Tennessee, with the intention of using it as a cruise missile against FedEx headquarters. Wow, wow. I, I had no idea about either of those. And, and this is something that's, I guess, more in the realm of coincidental, but... Oh, no, but it, it shows that, you know, these things have, have already happened. Oh, yeah, no, totally. I was just going to mention that I don't know the year that this happened, but it was on, just coincidentally, on 9-11, some other year during the Clinton administration, a Cessna... Uh, someone, someone flying a Cessna attempted to assassinate or crash the plane into the White House, right? As well, but there was also a plane that did crash into the White House in 1994. Oh, a, okay. A small personal plane or a private plane crashed into the White House. So the idea that people don't plan for these scenarios, that they. That nobody in government had ever conceived of such a thing is, is just absolutely absurd on its face. Well, it, it's, I mean, there's so many other pieces of evidence, too, that contradict that idea, including what the Secret Service was able to do. I think even as early as 1994, the Secret Service already had access to Stinger missiles in, in case a scenario exactly like a plane being flown into a government building was about to occur. And you're absolutely right. And one of the things I think that was reported on about uh, Bush being in Florida was that there was anti-aircraft missiles placed on the roof of the hotel that he was staying at. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was secret service. I think there in New York city, the secret service in, in New York city had access Right. Make sure that the center does not have anything above our airspace. Also, the Secret Service is going to start shooting at anything in the air. Inside one of the towers, I believe, they actually had there. That's where they kept some of their Stinger missiles was was in some Secret Service location there. Exactly. Which so- and for people who think that sounds ridiculous. Oh, you know, you can't expect, you know, the government to shoot a, you know, an RPG at a commercial plane. I mean, that's what they were. That was what the precaution was for. I mean, the, this a Stinger missile is essentially a rocket-propelled uh, grenade-type weapon that that you can sh- that one person can shoot, and as long as there's a a heat source like a jet engine, I mean, they're designed to to they're heat-seeking missiles. So when you shoot one towards a commercial airliner, with a pretty high likelihood that it would it would hit its target. Right. Um, so. I mean, that's just something that, that, you know, you rarely hear people talk about that the Secret Service had, you know, had these plans in place also. You know, in case, let's just assume that NORAD fucked up um, or they were just totally incompetent, you know, inundated with fake blips, drills happening. You know, the Secret Service, when the plane was coming in or whatever, um, you know, had plans as well as NORAD to, to prevent something like this from happening. Right, and planes have been intercepted. They were, they were intercepted long before 9-11, and they were intercepted long after 9-11. It's just it seems that on 9-11, every protocol dealing with this broke down. Yeah. And um, I've heard a lot of people debunk that claim by saying, well, you know, um, they, you, know you, you can't expect the government to just willy-nilly uh, you know, shoot down a plane full of passengers because they think it might be you know hijacked or being used as a missile but 
they're miss you're mi it's like people are missing a step there where that's not the protocol the protocol is first they escort the plane they fly parallel to it and try to look into the cockpit window to see what's going on and then they make a decision so they didn't even do that i mean they didn't even get that far on 9-11 as far as we know that the planes were so far behind that they didn't even get to the point where they could assess the situation and make a decision of, of whether to shoot it down or not i'm getting gonna read you a quote remember i said patty casaza showed up at that conference and one of the things she said she said basically from the outset the planes they didn't follow protocol they should have a they should have planes sent to accompany the commercial airlines once transponder, which is the uh, identification the FAA uses to track planes. Once that went off, that in itself is reason enough for fighter jets to be sent up in, in the means um, they're supposed to go on the side of the plane, rock their wings. That's an indicator that the pilot should turn some type of communications on with these fighter jets, let them know that everything's okay on board, um, that there isn't a hijacking um, or a pilot hasn't gotten sick. All of those things can happen without you shooting down a plane. And those jet fighters could rock, could rock their wings. They could actually knock, if there, were, if there were hijackers actually flying those planes, they could have knocked them off their feet. She says, so there were many, many measures that could have been taken and should have been taken, and those were written in protocols and, and were not followed on 9-11. And that's with four commercial jet airliners having been hijacked. I ask you, how is that possible? We spend more money in military than more than half the countries totaled in the world. And again, we couldn't get one plane up in time to accompany those four planes that were were wildly off course that's what patty casaza said and she's right yeah she's absolutely right and and the official story now tells us that the way that i guess the people on the ground learned that the planes were hijacked was from remarkably a accidental transmission made by not just one but two of the hijackers to the ground correct where they were there you know the hijackers thought they were talking to the plane but they turned on the wrong button or something and actually talked to, um, you know, air traffic controllers. Um, and I think that took place around eight fifteen that morning, and which still would have given them enough time, right? And exactly. and isn't it also true that not all of the transponders were turned off? That one of them was actually left on in one of the planes. I believe so. I. Um, so that gives. I mean, that even gives that theory less validity. Validity that you know, that only when the transponders were, or I guess that what I'm saying is that, you know, one of the planes still was trackable even. Um, and right. they're still claiming how difficult it was to actually go intercept it. You know, and we heard from NORAD, NORAD gave, so far as I know, somebody, Paul Thompson said that they gave as many as seven different timelines with regards to their response on the day of 9-11, but I'm aware of three specifically different timelines that they gave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even when they talked about their mission, they said that they were, they were looking outward. They were not looking within the borders of the United States. Um, and Jamie Gorlick 
During the 9-11 Commission, she said, in my experience, the military is very clear about its charters and who is supposed to do what. So if you go back and look at the foundational documents for NORAD, they do not say defend us only against a threat coming in from across the ocean or across our borders. It has two missions, and one of them is control of the airspace above the domestic United States. And And aerospace aerospace control control is defined as providing surveillance and control of the airspace of Canada and the United States. Now, to me, that air sovereignty concept means that you have a role which, if you were postured only externally, you defined out of the job. I would like to know, as a second question, is it your job, and if not, whose job is it, to make current assessments of the threat and decide whether you are positioned correctly to carry out a mission which, at least on paper, NORAD had. Did I answer both the questions? Am I? Uh, my, yes and no, and my time has expired. <laughs> and I, and Mr. Chairman, I, I yeah. really need to, I, yeah. I apologize, but I need to. Okay, we understand that. Jim. Get to the next venue up. Jesus. You know that was one of the things that NORAD said was that their their mission was to look outward, and that's just nonsense. I have uh, an article from 1998. All right, here from 1998, Western Air Defense Sector gets 1998 Scramble Award. And in the article, it says the sector, the sector is the Air National Guard organization responsible for the air sovereignty of the Western 63% of the continental United States. More than 300 Washington Air National Guard members of WADS has operational control of fighters on continuous alert with three alert bases where pilots wait for the call to identify unknown aircraft that could be a threat to the nation's air sovereignty. Um, So they said that they were responsible for 63% of the continental United States. Not looking outward, but they were looking inward. And they actually got an award for that. Yep, they got an award, it says, um, in the award judging period from May 15, 1996 to May 14, 1998, the sector uh, scrambled jets 129 times to identify these unknown um, unknown riders. The WAD scrambled jets another 42 times against potential and actual drug smugglers to support the Domestic Air Interdiction Coordination Center and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agencies. So NORAD was, you know, intercepting things left and right. Um, so essentially the, the, the public or the narrative that was delivered to the public is a, is a rewritten history trying to portray NORAD as an agency that was only ever designed to stop external threats when it clear, clearly wasn't because they had intercepted, you know, right so successfully all these other errant planes um previous to 9-11 and on september 17th 2001 norad gives a briefing to the white house and 9-11 commissioner bob Kerry will say and it feels like uh, uh, something happened in that briefing that 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 produced almost a necessity to 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 deliver a story that's different than what actually happened on that day now (laughs) so he so he's just has a nice way of saying that they are 
completely lying. Well, I mean, it, it's information that suggests the White House led the lies that would be told. Like they they were in charge of the lies that would be told. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, a lot of coaching. I'm sure. I'm sure took place. Um, exactly. It would have. It would be wonderful to be a fly on the wall and actually be able to know what what kind of things they they told um, people to say and. Um, I mean, because to me, you know, all those quotes from Colin Powell, Condi, Bush about, you know, they had no idea that, that something like this would happen on such a massive scale. It just seems like such a carefully worded lawyer, you know, lawyer coach statement, similar to when Condi uh, says, oh, this, you know, P- August 6th PDB memo is, quote, historical information. Commissioner, this was not a warning. This was a historic memo, historical memo prepared by the agency. Was the president, in words or substance, alarmed in any way or motivated to take any action? Uh, the president was told this is historical information. I'm told he was told this is historical information. And there was nothing actionable in this. I mean, I guess legally speaking, in a technical sense, I guess any document reflecting on anything that happened in the past could be considered historical information. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just all bullshit. Um, and that historical meme that she was talking about, she started saying that after the August sixth PDB was was first leaked, and then she repeated it um, during her testimony before the nine eleven commission. Yeah, so it was just a talking point that she was holding on to for for almost over a year. Right. Basically. So this is just more of an opinion question. Uh you know, the media immediately started accusing Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda as being responsible for the 9/11 attacks um on the on the day of 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um even before George W. Bush or the White House really said anything like that. Who do you think, or 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 what? Do, why do you think that this happened in the media? Do you think anyone is particularly to blame, or what? What are your thoughts on how that got spread so fast? I don't remember the first time somebody blamed Osama bin Laden or Al Qaeda for what happened. As far as the time of that day. Um, it could have been as early as the morning. I remember specifically uh, towards the end of the afternoon, um, they did, like the Bushman administration was saying that. Um, and then Colin Powell said that they would release a white yeah. paper saying, you know, showing exactly the proof that they had that it was Osama bin Laden and he never released that white paper and Ari Fleischer denied him ever saying that. Yeah. Yeah. That was when that, the guy in the press was, so you're basically asking us to trust you. Yeah, exactly. When they reneged on that, that promise that they made. Larry. I, I just want to make sure I understand the white house position in terms of evidence in general. Um, and, and I realize you're, you're saying that a lot of governments understand and, you know, share information privately. But is there any plan to present public evidence so that, you know, the average citizen, not just Americans, but people all over the world can understand the case against Well, I think as Secretary Powell said, you know, there, there's 
hope to do that uh, and to do so in a, in a timely fashion over some course of time. Um, that's always important in a democracy. In a democracy, it's always important to provide the maximum amount of information possible. But I think the American people also understand that there are going to be times when that information cannot immediately be forthcoming. And the American people seem to be accepting of that. But, but I, I really am talking even bigger. I mean, just, you know, you're, you're talking about actions in other parts of the world. Um, and, and certainly you want the support of as many people around the world as possible. I, you know, I guess it seems as though you're asking everyone to trust you, but without supplying information to show why you should trust. I mean, to go to a okay. point and then stop. Well, well, it's just that's not the type of information that can always be publicly shared, and I think the country has an appreciation for that. But you just have to gauge the reaction of nations around the world for themselves. They are working with us because they believe us. They're working with us because of things they know and because of the trust they hold in the United States government. It seems as though you're asking us to <laughs> trust you. Yeah. And they were. And, they, and, and apparently everybody seemed to. I mean, or most people did trust them. Um, which is incredible to me. I mean, after all the lies that were revealed and all of the crimes in the Bush administration, that people still inherently do trust the Bush administration of what happened in those early, you know, days following 9-11, they, there's no questioning of it, even till this day, from even vehement anti-Bush critics. Um, and that, to me, is a very interesting blind spot, that it's just, and I don't know, I mean, maybe emotionally it's still too difficult for people to go that far, but, you know, it just seems very obvious to me, and anybody I'm, I'm hoping that would look at all this evidence that the Bush administration blatantly lied um, about so many things in the wake of 9-11. Um, but, you know, there's a whole nother rabbit hole here uh, around 9-11 regarding what's referred to as the official in investigation of 9-11. And there wasn't just one investigation. There were multiple different investigation there was the fbi's internal investigation um uh that happened very quickly after 9-11 um there was the joint congressional inquiry and then there was the 9-11 commission and why don't you start by giving me a little bit of uh backstory on the very first stages of the investigation um and you were mentioning to me the last time we spoke that richard clark um was given a the the names of all the hijackers as early as what was it 945 959 a.m he was given 18 of the 19 he was given a flight manifest yeah or, or something to that effect um at, as early as 959 and it wasn't just a flight manifest meaning here are all the passengers on all four of these planes it was already here are the suspects essentially yeah exactly which which in and of itself seems very suspicious that well how did they know that so quickly if in unless they were keeping track of some of these people before it happened and then that raises a whole nother series of questions well why didn't they stop them from boarding any of the planes you know at the very least um you know you don't have to like arrest someone and throw them in jail for suspicion but you could at least stop them from boarding a commercial airplane um so anyways, that, that seems very strange to me, but, uh, what happened, um, 
you know, the, there's this talk about the what the FBI has called the Rosetta Stone um, that they discovered in a rental car parked at one of the airports. What what was that? There was a bag, uh, I believe it was filled with Muhammad Atta's will. Um, I don't remember the other items that were in the box, but with regards to the government having knowledge of these individuals, these, these hijackers, um, I'm going to read to you a quote. Um, and Gail Sheehy was a reporter who focused specifically on the Jersey Girls, and she wrote a number of articles um, while they were fighting for the 9-11 Commission. Um, This is a quote from one of her articles, and this is supposedly Kristen Brotweiser. It says, After the formal meeting, senior agents in the room faced a grilling by Kristen Brotweiser. And this is during an FBI press conference. Um, a 9-11 widow whose cohorts are three other widowed moms from New Jersey. Quote, I don't understand. With all the warnings about the possibilities of Al-Qaeda using planes as weapons and the Phoenix memo from one of your own agents warning that Osama bin Laden was sending operatives to this country for flight school training, why didn't you check out flight schools before September 11th? And, quote, um, her, the response was, do you know how many flight schools there are in the U.S.? Thousands, a senior agent protested. We couldn't have investigated them all and found these few guys. And she says, wait, you just told me there were too many flight schools and that prohibited you from investigating them before 9-11. Kristen persisted. How is it that a few hours after the attacks, the nation is brought to its knees and miraculously... FBI agents showed up at the Embry-Riddle Flight School in Florida where some of the terrorists trained. And the response was, we got lucky. Um, That's just, it's it's a lie. I mean, it, it, of course they didn't get lucky. I mean, there, there are just so many different pieces of evidence showing that they must have known um, where, you know, at the very least where these people were. Maybe not necessarily which flight schools they were at, but um, well, it seems they know exactly which flight schools they were at. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. They received basically in mid June, FBI Director Robert Mueller and several senior agents in the bureau received a group of almost twenty visitors in a briefing room of the J. Edgar Hoover Building in Washington, D.C. The director himself narrated a PowerPoint presentation that summarized the number of agents and leads and evidence he and his people had collected in the 18-month course of their ongoing investigation of Pentbomb, the clever neologism (laughs) the Bureau had invented to reduce the sites of devastation on 9-11 to one word. Pent for Pent for for Pentagon, Pen for Pennsylvania, TT for the Twin Towers, and born of the four planes that the government had been forewarned could be used as weapons, even bombs, but chose to ignore. Um, so basically, there was a press briefing that the families attended with the FBI. So it, I remember from Bob McElvain telling me that when he would ask them about the put options that were purchased prior to 9-11, um, they were told that that was disinformation from the FBI. 
So there were these investigations that were going on that seemingly weren't getting the full story. So the families fought for an independent blue ribbon panel, um, nonpartisan commission. And they fought for, you know, 441 days before it was enacted into law, which became the 9-11 Commission. And, and what happened previous to that? I, I learned from you last year um, that, that Tom Daschle was trying to head up a congressional inquiry into 9-11 before, before that. And what was, you know, what happened to him, his efforts? There was a joint congressional inquiry, and the heads of that joint congressional inquiry were Bob Graham and Porter Goss. And that was the joint congressional inquiry. That's what, apparently, according to Tom Daschle, that's what Dick Cheney and George Bush were trying to, to get them not to do. Um, and one, one interesting tidbit about Porter Goss, in one of the articles Gail Sheehy wrote, it says, quote, they once caught the Jersey girls once caught Congressman Porter Goss hiding behind his office door to avoid them. <laughs> so, and, and I guess, um, you know, maybe he, you know, played a certain role and was trying to, you know, steer this investigation in a certain way. And wasn't he eventually, didn't he eventually replace George Tennant? Yeah, no, he became a CIA director. But during the 9-11 Commission, he was the one, uh, I'm sorry, during the Joint Congressional Inquiry, he was like the liaison with the White House. And yeah. He's the one that worked with them to decide which pages would be redacted. Remember, the Joint Congressional Inquiry had 28 redacted pages uh, in it that had to do with Saudi financing for the attacks and so forth. And I'd just like to say that right now, um, Terry Strada, who's a 9-11 family member, she's working with Representative Stephen Lynch and Representative Walter Jones to try and get those 28 redacted pages released. They've been redacted since you know the, the Joint Congressional Inquiry released its report. And it's funny that when Obama first came into office, one of the first things he did was hold a meeting with the 9-11 family members. And according to Kristen Bratweiser, she asked Obama to his face to release those 28 redacted pages. And he said he would and never got back to her. Interesting. So that, so, so based on what we know, we know for sure that 28 pages are redacted. And who else knows what was just simply not even included in, in that. Right. And, and going back to the FBI investigation for a second, has any of that information been released to the public? Like, have they just dumped, you know, some of the documents of their investigation or is that stuff still? A lot of it, it, it found its way into the nine 11 commission. Yeah. You know, that, you know, the nine 11 commission was based, it started their work where the Joint Congressional Inquiry left off, essentially, where they stopped. So, so if, if I wanted to go on the internet and find some of these um, pieces of evidence, like, can I find anything online from this supposed Rosetta Stone that the FBI found? Well, I think 
uh, from the Masawi trial. Many of the documents were were put online. Okay. Uh, and you know, a lot of pictures. I, I remember going through the archives of the Masawi trial. They had they had pictures of debris where Flight ninety three crashed. I mean, they released all sorts of things. Which is which is just a uh, just to sidetrack us very quickly is that that the whole Masawi trial thing to me seemed like another attempt to inundate us with with you know try to reinforce the official story that they had delivered previously and another thing that the Masawi trial was used for i mean every time the family members would ask for information they said that we can't release it because of ongoing investigations oh no good good one so so that could go on for virtually you know, infinity since they haven't prosecuted even Khalid Sheikh Muhammad yet. I mean, they could always say that, that there's still some kind of ongoing investigation or, you know, pre-trial or something. Exactly. So essentially the families were not satisfied with the investigations we were getting and they started fighting for an independent investigation. In fact, Kristen Bratweiser, when she testified, before the joint congressional inquiry, that was th the preface of her argument that we need a blue ribbon panel, you know, independent commission with subpoena power and, and everything. And, and they, the families were very big on the idea of holding people accountable. They wanted people in government to be held accountable for their actions. And mm -hmm. that never happened. So, the 9-11 Commission was created, and the odd thing about that, um, the people who helped the families the most get the 9-11 Commission created was John McCain and uh, Joe Lieberman. Well, that's, a, that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that. And I always questioned, you know, why would John McCain, of all people, be involved with something like that? And I read that it's possible that because of how he was treated by Karl Rove during the 2000 elections that he wanted this investigation to come out because it would have, you know, bad information against the Bush administration. I was just going to suggest that there were, yeah, there was a lot of dirty tricks played on him during the election. I remember one specifically was rumored to have been floated out there by Karl Rove that he had like a illegitimate black daughter. <laughs> Do you remember that one? No, I don't. But I do remember all the shit he took from the Bush administration, you know, trying to get the, the Republican seat. Yeah. And then eventually, I mean, he seemed to fall in line pretty, pretty much in lockstep with the Bush administration after uh, that. Yep. And Joe Lieberman, of course, as well. But um, so and 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 tell me a little bit about you know when when the administration finally caved and when this finally was agreed upon that they were going to do this this um this 911 commission investigation um what henry kissinger was appointed by bush to be what what was the what was his role supposed to be well, henry kissinger was going to be the um the 911 chairman of, of the 911 commission he was supposedly going to be in charge. And what happened was the families requested a meeting with Henry, with Henry Kissinger at his offices in New York. And during that meeting, 
um, I think it was, I think it was Kristen Browiser that did the research into Henry Kissinger. But I think it was Lori Van Auken that asked the questions of Henry Kissinger about his ties to the Bin Laden group. Did he have any clients by the name of Bin Laden? And I think he refused to answer these questions. And as a result, he stepped down from um, his position. But the funny thing was, the day that it was announced that he was going to be the 9-11 commissioner, uh, the head 9-11 chairman, he was outside taking questions from reporters. And one of the things that he was asked about was whether or not Saudi Arabia would be investigated. And he said all avenues, you know, every stone would be unturned and stuff like that. I just thought that that was interesting that he was asked specifically that question. Yeah, I remember that you, you uploaded that video where he was like, uh, "I will accept no restrictions," you exactly. know, like like acting like he was going to have final say or whatever. But apparently, yep. he couldn't take the heat of just you know having one of the nine eleven family members ask him a pretty simple question that right. he refused to answer. Dr. Kissinger, do you have any concerns about? Once the commission begins its work, if fingers point to valuable allies, say Saudi Arabia, for example, um, the implications, the policy implications this could have to the United States, particularly at this delicate time. Uh, I have been given every assurance uh, by the president that we should uh, that we should go where the facts lead us, and that we are not restricted by any foreign policy considerations. And he has promised me, as one would expect, uh, the fullest cooperation. We are under no restrictions. And we would accept no restrictions. Several family members approached Kissinger and requested a meeting at his office in New York. Prior to the meeting, Kristen Breitweiser conducted a thorough investigation of Kissinger's potential conflicts of interest. Probably much to the chagrin of some of the people in the room, Lori asked some very pointed questions. Would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? And he was very uncomfortable, kind of twisting and turning on the couch. And then she asked whether he had any clients by the name of Bin Laden. And he just about (laughs) fell off his couch. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger stepped down from the position Friday. Is that the going theory about why he stepped down just simply because he didn't want that aspect of his he he did not want to disclose his clients yeah essentially so after that thomas keen who was the former governor of new jersey was selected um, as the 9-11 chairman and then lee hamilton was selected as the 9-11 co-chairman and there were many conflicts of interest um between those two alone let me find a little piece of information about them he was on the commission that investigated the iran contra affair okay okay and he was also um on the commission that that investigated what was called the october surprise in my article entitled the facts speak for themselves which is greatly uh, dependent on historycommons.org information. It says they appointed Thomas Keene as chairman, someone, quote, who will be easily controlled by the administration, end quote, 
and Lee Hamilton, a longtime friend of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, to be the co-chair. Hamilton, Hamilton participated in two inquiries that resulted in cover-ups, the Iran-Contra uh, affair and uh, the October surprise inquiry. And, you know, there are links on my, my article. And I just wanted to mention one one thing about Lee Hamilton is he also served on what was called the Hart Rudman report, right? which called for the inception of a new independent national homeland security agency in 1998, um, which was essentially the proto, you know, the homeland, um, homeland security uh, that was, that a lot of most people um, only know as an agency that was formed after nine 11. And, and, and while it was the framework for it was already being built under, under Clinton. Um, on March 28th, 2003, according to History Commons, um, the independence of 9 11 Commission is called into question. An article highlights conflicts of interest amongst the commissioners on the 9 11 Commission. It had previously reported that many of the commissioners had ties to the airline industry, but a number of but a number have other ties. Quote, at least three of the 10 commissioners serve as directors of international financial or consulting firms. Five work for law firms that represent airlines and three have ties to the U.S. military or defense contractors. According to personal financial disclosures, they were required to submit. Brian Doyle, project manager for the Watchdog Group Aviation Integrity Project, says, quote, it is simply a failure on the part of the people making the selections to consider the talented pool of non-conflicted individuals. And then he goes on to say the commission chairman, Thomas Keene, says that members are expected to steer clear of discussions that might present even the appearance of a conflict. And then th there's another entry at historycommons.org that... December 16th, 2002, members of the 9-11 Commission have potential conflicts of interests. Um, and they have a whole list. It says Fred Fielding works for a law firm lobbying for Spirit Airlines and United Airlines. Slade Gordon has close ties to Boeing, which built all the planes destroyed on 9-11. And his law, his law firm represents several major airlines, including Delta Airlines, John Lehman, uh, former Secretary of the Navy, has large investments in uh, Ballycor, which has many U.S. military contracts. James Thompson, former Illinois governor, is the head of a law firm that lobbies for American Airlines and has previously represented uh, United Airlines. Um, Richard Benveniste represented Boeing and United Airlines. Um, he also has curious, other curious connections, according to a 2001 book on CA ties to drug running written by Daniel Hopsicker, um, which has an entire chapter called Who is Richard Benveniste? Um, apparently, he represented Barry Seal. Do you know who he is? I've heard the name before, but no, tell me, tell me who he is. Um, he's been referred to in print as a, quote, mob lawyer. Uh, Richard Benveniste was, and was a longtime lawyer for Barry Seal, one of the most famous drug dealers in U.S. history, who is also alleged to have had CIA uh, connections. Um, Max Cleland, former U.S. senator, has received $300,000 from the airline industry. J. 
Jamie Gorlick is director of United Technologies, one of the Pentagon's biggest defense contractors and a supplier of engines to airline manufacturers. Um, it says Lee Hamilton sits on many advisory boards, including those to the CIA, the President's Homeland Security Advisory Council, and the U.S. Army. Um, Tim Romer represents Boeing and Lockheed Martin. So that's going through all the commissioners and some of the conflicts of interest that they had. Now we can get into Philip Zelikow. Well, I just wanted to mention that it's funny that the, that aviation watchdog described it as an error in appointing these people. And to me, it seems like their their conflict of interests are so ridiculous that it seems pretty obvious that that's probably why they were, you know, in part at least, why they were chosen to head up the commission. Well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, who is a 9-11 whistleblower with regards to a program called Able Danger. He was once on Judge Napolitano's show, Freedom Watch, which was on Fox News. And he said that he was told that every commissioner there was there to cover up for somebody. Sounds pretty accurate to me. Right. So... So who? So let's go to one of the most infamous players in all of this, and and I guess the the cover up side of this um, of this whole story. Um, who is Philip Zelikow, and what was his what was his exact role in the nine eleven commission? Well, Philip Zelikow was the executive director of the nine eleven commission, and. Paul Sperry explained, quote, though he has no vote, Zelikow arguably has more sway than any member, including the chairman. Zelikow picks the areas of investigation, the briefing materials, the topics for hearings, the witnesses, and the lines of questioning for those witnesses. In effect, he sets the agenda and runs the investigation, end quote. That was uh, according to Paul Sperry. And, you know, it, that's the truth. The family members will attest to that, that he was in charge of everything. Um, now, Philip Zelikow has long ties to the Bush family. The, you know, in the Bush quail campaign, he worked for them. Um, There's actually yeah. a video on C-SPAN I just came across last night where he is debating he he is the foreign policy advisor for the bush administration during the that campaign against clinton and he and he's pitted against madeleine albright um debating right. for the clinton side so that goes to show how much of an important role he played in that administration we're talking about the george h bush right administration george h w yeah george h w the the guy who likes to to jump out of airplanes yeah um <laughs> Philip Zelico, foreign policy advisor to the Bush Quail campaign. What distinguishes President Bush's foreign policy from Governor Clinton's? I think what distinguishes the Bush foreign policy most of all is that Bush knows how to make hard strategic choices so that he has more than just goals. He has actually a way of getting those goals accomplished. Uh, that's why when I was listening to the clip of uh, Governor Clinton's speech, it was remarkable that Governor Clinton was criticizing President Bush because he hadn't done enough to aid democracy. In four years when more countries 
and more people have moved toward democracy under the watch of this president than under the watch of any president in American history. During the 90s, he wrote a book with Condoleezza Rice. Um, it was called Germany Unified and Europe Transformed, A Study in Statecraft. Um, now, there's one aspect of Philip Zelikow that rarely gets any attention, and I'm going to talk about it now. There's an organization called the Aspen Strategy Group, and an article written a long time ago entitled, Philip, Philip Zelikow, The Bush Administration Investigates the Bush Administration. And it was written by Brian Sachs. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about this Aspen strategy group. Um, and this is directly from the article. There are lesser known facts about Zelikow's connections to the Bush administration that are equally disturbing. For instance, in the early 1990s, Zelikow directed the Aspen strategy group, members of which staffed key positions in both the Bush and Clinton administrations. Interestingly, Judith Miller, the former New York Times reporter implicated in the outing of a CIA operative, Valerie Plame, is another emeritus member of ASG. I. Lewis Scooter Libby, indicted in October 2005 on a total of five counts of obstruction of, obstruction of justice, uh, making false statements and perjury, wrote a cryptic letter to the jailbound Miller that seemed both to reference Miller's association with the Aspen group and to attempt to silence her before she testified before the grand jury. And it, the, the note was, quote, out west where you vacation, the Aspens will already be turning. They turn in clusters because their roots connect them, end quote. Jeez. <laughs> Um, several prominent current and former Bush administration figures are emeritus members of the Aspen Strategy Group, including Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, and Richard Armitage. It's an odd turn of phrase, one that seems to insinuate that to give evidence against Libby might impl implicate some of these other, quote, Aspens. And what's also odd to me, I mean, I didn't even, I've never even heard of this group until you told me about it. And it's fascinating that, that, as you said, it's bipartisan and had Clinton officials in it as well. And some of those Clinton officials and Democrats include Al Gore, um, I believe even Joe Lieberman, Dianne Feinstein, and then other people from the media and corporate establishment too, like which, you know, w weird associations like michael eisner of disney um is even part of this group and i recommend people just look into the aspen is it called the aspen strategy group or the aspen institute the, the aspen strategy group i i think it's and one of the one of the weirdest or i guess one of the most notable connections to that group is that zelikow was in it along with all these other people and also bandar bush correct um who, That's one of the most interesting conflicts of interest, is that Zelikow belonged to this group, and so did Prince Bandar. And as it turns out, Bandar's wife is connected to money of two of the hijackers. Yeah, and, and Bandar personally met Bin Laden back when, you know, he was apparently not the black sheep in the family. I think at some point in the early nineties, he he dis he describes meeting him at some kind of family gathering. Um, so. 
So yeah, um, but so Zelikow obviously has immense conflict of interest. He was a colleague and probably remained loyal to the Bush family and other people that worked in the White House all throughout the 90s and during the second Bush administration. But tell me a little bit about his history of being exposed as being someone who manipulated the historical record um, <laughs> previous to the 9-11 Commission. Well, one thing before we get into that is that between 1997 and 1998, Zelikow helped to write a report that said, quote, long part of the Hollywood and Tom Clancy repertory of nightmarish scenarios, catastrophic terrorism has moved from far-fetched horror to a contingency that could happen next month. Although the the United States still takes conventional terrorism seriously, it is not yet prepared for the new threat of catastrophic terrorism. They predict the consequences of such an event, quote, um, in the paper, an act of catastrophic terrorism that killed thousands or tens of thousands of people and or disrupted the, the necessities of life for hundreds of thousands or even millions would be a watershed event in American history. It could involve loss of life and property unprecedented for peacetime and undermine Americans' fundamental sense of security within their own borders in a manner akin to the 1949 Soviet atomic uh, bomb test, or perhaps even worse. Constitutional liberties would be challenged as the United States sought to protect itself from further attacks by pressing against allowable limits in surveillance of citizens, detention of suspects, and the use of deadly force. More violence would follow, either as other terrorists seek to imitate this great success, or as the United States strikes out at those considered responsible. Then this is the last sentence. Like Pearl Harbor, such an event would divide our past and future into a before and after. That is, so he, that's incredible. He essentially he predicted, you know, the pre nine eleven world, the post nine eleven world, and what what everything would entail within that world. So he had but, the same level of prescience. Um, I, I put that in quotes as uh, as Paul Wolfowitz did when he spoke about how it's surprising how we're surprised by surprise attacks like right. Pearl Harbor, and that. Um, you know, there were so many warnings for Pearl Harbor, but, you know, we didn't stop them and, um, and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, tell me about uh, w- what he did when he wrote a book about, a book that was based on some of the original John F. Kennedy tapes. Right. In May 2002, um, future authors of the 9-11 report produce a John F. Kennedy book that is, quote, riddled with errors. And the individual that he wrote it with was, is a, name, a man by the name of Ernest May. Um, now, I'm going to read directly from History Commons. An eminent historian finds serious flaws in a historical treatise about former President John F. Kennedy. The book, called The Kennedy Tapes, Inside the White House During the Cuban Missile Crisis, was written in 1997 by conservative historians Ernest May and Philip Zelikow. 
and purports to be an unprecedentedly accurate representation of the events of 1962's Cuban Missile Crisis based on transcriptions of recorded meetings, conferences, telephone conversations, and interviews with various participants. Zelikow is a former member of George H.W.'s National Security Council and a close advisor to future National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. Um, May is a Harvard professor. Both will participate heavily in the creation of the 2004 report by the 9-11 Commission. Almost three years after the Kennedy's book's publication, Sheldon M. Stern, the historian for the John F. Kennedy Library from 1977 through 1999, pours over it and the May Zelikow transcripts, um, pours over it and the May Zelikow transcripts, sorry, end of sentence. In the original edition, May and Zelikow admitted that their final product was not perfect. Quote, the reader has here the best text we can produce, but it is certainly not perfect. <laughs> we hope that some, perhaps many, will go to the original tapes. If they find an error or make out something we could not, we will enter the corrections in subsequent editions or printings of this volume, end quote. Which on the surface seems like, oh, that's really humble of them to admit that they, you know, they didn't get that perfect and... Anybody out there who's reading this, you know, feel free to correct our record, you know, in case you find any errors, but right. And then, and what happened when this, this person who was in charge of the, all this information at the JFK library confronted them, um, with these inaccuracies. When Stern checks the book against the tapes, he finds hundreds of errors in the book, some quite significant. Stern concludes that the errors quote significantly undermined the book's reliability for historians, teachers, and general readers. May, May and Zelikow have, have corrected a few of the errors in subsequent editions, but have not publicly acknowledged any errors. Stern concludes, quote, readers deserve to know that even now, the Kennedy tapes cannot be relied on as an accurate historical document. Um, one error has then-Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy talking about the planned, quote, invasion, end quote, of Russian ships heading to Cuba when the tapes actually show Kennedy discussing a far less confrontational, quote, examination of those vessels. Manzel, Manzel can imply that the Kennedy administration was discussing just the kind of confrontation that it was actually trying to avoid. Another error has CIA Director John McCain uh, referring to the need to call on former President Dwight D. Eisenhower as a, quote, facilitator, where McCone actually said, soldier. Uh, Manzelikow will be rather dismissive of Stern's findings, saying that, quote, none of these amendments are very important, end quote. So uh, it sounds like you know, Philip Zelikow's sort of MO is that he, he's really good at rewriting history. I mean, you would think that, uh, you know, transcribing audio from a tape would be pretty literal. You would, you know, it would be hard actually to make blatant errors um, in just simply transcribing something that only really leaves one possibility for me is that he deliberately altered and manipulated the historical record to 
essentially fit the JFK presidency more into this, you know, as they say, a more neoconservative paradigm to make to make JFK sort of appear more in line with what you know the foreign policy perspective was of people like Zelikow on Wolfowitz and Bush, or or you know, or people like Robert Kagan from PNAC. Right. Um, and going back to the book that he wrote with Condoleezza Rice, um, it's widely considered one of the most authoritative accounts of the very tail end of the U.S. Um, pitted against Russia in the Cold War. Um, and it's pretty damning in and of itself that he was writing a book with Condoleezza Rice all the way back then. And then he was headed up essentially to you know, be in charge of the 9-11 Commission. And he was supposed to you know, put scrutiny on people like Condoleezza Rice. But what I find interesting about that is that the book itself is not, perhaps not as bad as this JFK book that he wrote, but it's also of a similar vein of trying to, you know, maybe more subtly manipulate the historical record to um, imply that the U.S. played a much more important role in winning the Cold War towards the end, that, that you know... Um, they they minimized this idea that the Soviet Union's economy was destined to collapse, anyways, and they sort of provide this narrative that you know the U.S. was doing so many different things, and you know it was so complicated how much we were involved to make this sort of all go off um, in the end, and and it and it portrays the United States in this much more heroic um, way than I believe that it actually was back then. Right, um, I agree, and. There's another part of Zelikow that needs to be talked about. While, while he was at Harvard, quote, he worked with Ernest May and Richard Newstead, and listen to this very carefully, on the use and misuse of history in policymaking. They observed, as Zelikow noted in his own words, that, quote, contemporary history is, quote, defined functionally by those criti critical people and events that go into forming the public's presumptions about its immediate past. The idea of public presumption, he explained, is akin to William McNeil's notion of public myth, but without the negative implication sometimes invoked by the word myth. Sub such presumptions are beliefs, one, thought to be true, although not necessarily known to be true with, it, with certainty, and two, shared in common with the relevant political community. So he worked on the use and misuse of history in policymaking. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it just seems, this guy is extremely manipulative. I mean, even to the point where he's acting like he's some kind of authority on, you know, how other people, not not himself, are are misusing the historical record to to shape some kind of myth um, right. and what's exactly what he's actually done and not just once, but at least three separate times that, you know, that we can point to the, the book he wrote with Condoleezza Rice about the cold war, the JFK book that he wrote where he transcribed the tapes incorrectly. And then the actual nine 11 commission, which we'll get into a little bit more detail about what he, you know, how he obstructed that. Right. He wrote the preemptive war strategy that was used by the Bush administration. Zelikow tried to prevent 9-11 Commission staffers from talking to the 9-11 commissioners. 
Zelikow, and you wanted to talk in, about this in detail, tried to insert a false connection between Iraq and 9-11 into the 9-11 report. But the families and the staffers fought against it. Select staffers of the 9-11 Commission dispute this account, though Zelikow ultimately had to approve uh, Laurie Milroy's testimony before the 9-11 Commission. And as it turns out, Laurie Milroy was not the only one who testified before the 9-11 Commission um, that tried to tie Iraq to 9-11. And these uh, were just people, I mean, uh, the, and, and, and watching some of these clips, it's, it's like they're being trotted out as witnesses, supposedly, but all they're doing when they're talking in front of the 9-11 Commission is they're literally repeating the same kind of bullshit talking points the Bush administration put out about Iraq and, you know, the potential for Saddam Hussein to use WMDs. Indeed, there is substantial reason to believe that these masterminds are Iraqi intelligence agents. Now, the 93 bombing of the Trade Center is supposed to be the start of a new stateless terrorism. But New York FBI, the lead investigative agency, its director, Jim Fox, believed that Iraq was behind the bomb. Why? It was huge. It was meant to topple one tower onto the other, and it left a crater six stories deep in the basement floors. Um, so it's awfully strange that, you know, there's so many people who were so vehemently against the Iraq war, but trust the 9-11 Commission when so much of the 9-11 Commission, or, or not, I mean, not a huge amount, but enough of the 9-11 Commission was devoted to spreading propaganda to, about the Iraq war. False. And Lies. Here's, here's something that I wrote a little bit about Philip Zelikow and the Iraq war. It says, did you know that in June 2002, the future executive director of the 9-11 Commission, Philip Zelikow, will show his support for the future invasion of Iraq? Um, from History Commons, it says, quote, from Philip Zelikow, we're now beginning to understand that we can't wait for these folks to deliver the weapons of mass destruction and see what they do with them before we act, end quote. Um, he adds, we're beginning to understand that we might not want to give people like Saddam Hussein advance warning that we're going to strike. Amazing. But Alan and the other members of Team 3 were shocked when they saw what Zelico handed back. In a section about bin Laden's actions in the 1990s, Zelico had inserted sentences that tried to link al-Qaeda to Iraq to suggest that the terrorist network had repeatedly communicated with the government of Saddam Hussein in the years before 9-11. The passages were subtly crafted, but his point was clear, and he must have known what impact the passages would have when reporters and the White House got hold of them. He wanted to put the commission staff on record as saying that there was at least the strong possibility that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein had collaborated to target the United States before 9-11 precisely the argument that the Bush White House had made furiously before and after the invasion of Iraq. The intelligence that did exist was sketchy, yet Zelico was coming close to presenting it as fact. The staff suspected that Zelico realized at the meeting that he had been caught in a clear-cut act of helping his friends in the Bush White House, that he had tried to twist the wording of the report to serve the needs of the Bush administration. Zelico said later it was nothing of the sort.
It would be quite wrong to say that I wanted the commission to come to a conclusion that there was a connection between Iraq and 9-11. I had never made that argument. If someone on the commission chose to see his actions on Iraq as partisan, he said, there was little he could do about it. The first expert witness the 9-11 Commission called was someone by the name of uh, Abraham Sofer. He was from the Hoover Institution, a conservative think tank. Do you know what he did? He promoted the Iraq War. As it says from History Commons, quote, he calls on the commission to endorse the preemptive war concept and in effect the invasion of Iraq, end quote. Um, It's wild. I'm sorry, another witness to testify before the 9-11 Commission was Laurie Milroy, someone who tried to make the case for a direct link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. After Milroy's testimony, 9-11 family member Laurie Van Alken will confront Zelikow from History Commons. Quote, Jersey girl Laurie Van Alken, who has learned a great deal about Milroy's theories in her research, confronts Zelikow shortly after the hearings. This is this is Lori Van Alken now. Quote, that took a lot of nerve putting someone like that on the panel. She she tells Zelikow, Lori Milroy, this is supposed to be an investigation of September 11th. This is not supposed to be a sales pitch for the Iraq war. End quote. And Van Alken later recalls, quote, a sly smile, end quote, crossing Zelikow's face as he refuses to answer. Quote, he knew exactly what he was doing, Van Auken will say. He was selling the war. A lot of people try to paint Zelikow as this lower-level guy who was plucked up by the Bush administration because he had a lot of scholarly and, and writing you know, background. But he's clearly, I mean, he, he, he does know what he's doing. Um, he, he's, he seems extremely manipulative. I mean, he even testified to the 9-11 commission which i thought was odd as he actually um did an hour-long speech to the rest of the commission which essentially was just him hyping up terrorism fears to such ridiculous heights that he was saying things about biological attacks um that terrorists could use dirty bombs um i don't know if he specifically mentioned iraq in that testimony but he was he was building a bridge, basically, to that idea of preemptive warfare, that state actors could sell WMDs to terrorists. And if right. you listen to it now, I mean, even people who believe the official story, if, you go, if they went back and listened to his testimony, mm-hmm. they would see him as a, either a psychotic person or, or he's just completely parroting the Bush administration's uh, terrorism propaganda. Al-Qaeda remains intensely interested in conducting chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear attacks. In 1994, Al-Qaeda operatives attempted to purchase uranium for one and a half million dollars. The uranium proved to be fake. Though this attempt failed, Al-Qaeda continues to pursue its strategic objective of obtaining a nuclear weapon. Likewise, it remains interested in using a radiological dispersal device, or dirty bomb, a conventional explosive designed to spread radioactive material. Documents found in Al-Qaeda facilities contain accurate information on the usage and impact of such weapons. Al-Qaeda had an ambitious biological weapons program and was making advances in its ability to produce anthrax prior to September 11th. According to Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet, Al-Qaeda's ability to conduct an anthrax attack is one of the most immediate threats the United States is likely to face. 
Similarly, Al-Qaeda may seek to conduct a chemical attack by using widely available industrial chemicals or by attacking a chemical plant or a shipment of hazardous materials. The intelligence community expects that the trend toward attacks intended to cause ever higher casualties will continue. Al-Qaeda and other extremist groups will likely continue to exploit leaks of national security information in the media, open source information on techniques such as mixing explosives, and advances in electronics. It may modify traditional tactics in order to prevent detection or interdiction by counter-terrorist forces. Regardless of the tactic, Al-Qaeda is actively striving to attack the United States and inflict mass casualties. According to author Phil Sheenan, quote, to some members of the staff, Zelikow seemed determined to demonstrate that whatever the evidence to the contrary, Iraq and Al-Qaeda had a close relationship that justified the toppling of Saddam Hussein, end quote. And now from my article, uh, the facts speak for themselves. In 2004, listen to this, in 2004, Bush's presidential campaign said, quote, the commission's report makes the case for the policies that the U.S. President, that U.S. President Bush has been pursuing in the war on terror and eliminates any doubt that the best defense against the threat of global terror is a strong offense. <laughs> that was from Bush's 2004 presidential campaign. Now, let's get back to Zelikow. It has been alleged that he may have taken direction from Karl Rove, who, according to Phil Sheenan, was concerned about the 9-11 commission because, quote, in the wrong hands, it could cost President Bush a second term, end quote. The allegation regarding Rove drove the September 11th advocates, formerly known as the Jersey Girls, to call for an entirely new investigation. At the time, this took place in February of 2008, only Raw Story covered that. Zelico is having conversations with, of all people, Karl Rove, uh, and this creates, as you might imagine, a huge amount of alarm and suspicion on the commission staff. You know, what, what is the executive director of the 9-11 Commission doing talking to Karl Rove? Uh, the questions he raised about uh, your uh, communications with uh, Karl Rove uh, during that period and and also that uh, the issue of whether you sought to have your secretary remove the logs of your phone calls. Well, not only can I respond to them, uh, uh, the commissioners actually have responded and will, re and will respond to anyone who asks them because uh, I, all, I was uh, authorized by the commission to talk to White House officials regularly, as was the general counsel, Dan Marcus, and the business about phone logs. Actually, uh, two of the three people who took my calls don't even remember this story. Um, well, let me ask I mean, you this directly is, this very um, straightforward allegation of Philip Sheenan that he said that you called in your secretary, shut the door, informed her she was no longer to keep phone logs of uh, your contacts with the White House. Did you tell her not to keep logs yes, of your well, White House calls? You don't have to rely on my account of this. I mean, there are other people who have knowledge of these facts, and there's no there there. Uh, and and so a, you're saying you did not um, tell her. This is a. You did not tell her not I, to keep logs. There are no phone logs for the commission. There are no phone. The commission had no phone logs. <laughs> so I couldn't tell her not to keep logs in a situation where the commission didn't have phone logs. But she kept your I logs. Mean, this is. I mean. 
She kept no, your logs. I did, not, I did not have any phone logs. So you're saying I, you did not. This is a completely fabricated story. This is a garble of a of of something that's probably come sec you know two or three layers removed from people who don't actually understand the way our office worked. One one of the big things to come out after the 9/11 Commission in early 2003, Philip Zelikow and Ernest May wrote a complete outline of the final 9/11 report. Now this is before the investigation even began. <laughs> Zelikow, Keene, and Hamilton decided to keep this outline a secret from the commission staffers when, quote, it was later disclosed that Zelikow had prepared a detailed outline of the commission's final report at the very start of the investigation. Many of the staff's investigators were alarmed. <laughs> that's, um, that's ridiculous. Now, so, so, I mean, it's he already, he outlined what he wanted the conclusions to be and, and magically um, <laughs> the conclusions of the commission reflected the outline he made before it even started. Zelico initially wanted May's advice on how the final report should be structured and they went to work secretly to prepare an outline. By March 2003, with the commission staff barely in place, the two men had already prepared a detailed outline, complete with chapter headings, subheadings, and sub-subheadings. Zelico shared the document with Keene and Hamilton, who were impressed by their executive director's early diligence, but worried that the outline would be seen as evidence that they, and Zelico, had predetermined the report's outcome. It should be kept secret from the rest of the staff, they all decided. When it was later disclosed that Zelico had prepared a detailed outline of the commission's final report at the very start of the investigation, many of the staff's investigators were alarmed. He rewrote the 9-11 report to be more favorable of Condoleezza Rice. Um, in fact, he told staffers of the 9-11 Commission not to believe Richard Clark, but to believe what Condoleezza Rice was saying. Um, Zelikow refused to approve half of the interview requests for Saudi Connection investigators. He blocked investigators from accessing the 28 redacted pages of the Joint Congressional Inquiry and then fired Dana Leesman after she tried to get the pages through a back channel. In June 2004, Philip Zelikow and Dieter, Stel Dieter Snell take part in a, quote, late-night editing session, end quote, to delete passages of the 9-11 report having to do with Saudi support for the hijackers. Now, Phil Sheenan actually writes in his book that Philip Zelikow was sympathetic to those people trying to connect Saudi Arabia to the 9-11 attacks, but his actions during the 9-11 commission don't coincide with that. Yeah, I, I think that was part of my issue with, with Phil Sheenan's book is as much good information that's in there, he gives people a pass too often. In, right. including Zelikow. Um, right. Um, now, the, one of the biggest things regarding Philip Zelikow is that on two occasions, the 9-11 family members called for his resignation. That should speak volumes to the American people, that they, they literally called for his resignation. Um. Now, after the 9-11 Commission, Philip Zelikow was given a job with Condoleezza Rice at the State Department. 
Um, on September 7th, 2011, it was reported that, quote, President Obama appointed Philip Zelikow um, to serve on the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. So he served... He worked under Bush, and he worked under he worked under Obama, or is working under Obama. And was he? I I can't I, I didn't find this out, but did he actually work in the Clinton administration as well, or was he in the private sector during that? Period? I I think he was working at university then. I don't think he was working for Clinton. So he worked, but he worked for both Bush administrations and and the Obama administration, right? What we know. Now, with regards to the 9-11 Commission, for the creation of the 9-11 Commission, the Bush administration was, quote, the biggest adversary to the families when it came to the creation of that commission. Um, The families had to fight, quote, tooth and nail, end quote, and lobby to get an investigation because the Bush administration clearly did not want one. And I'm reading right now from the Facts Speak for Themselves, which is my article. Um, Dick Cheney and George Bush refused to testify under oath before select individuals of the 9-11 Commission, even though the families wanted them to. Uh, They testified together, not in public, and no recordings were allowed. The families requested the transcripts of their meeting, but were denied. Um, The Bush administration made it difficult for the commission to get funding. Um, They limited, they tried to limit the time of the 9-11 Commission. Basically, the 9-11 Commission started with a $3 million budget, uh-huh. and, and the families had to fight for more money. I mean, it, it went to $11 million and then I think to 14 or $15 million. but it was because of the families fighting for it that they got this. You know, there, there was an extension on the time. Again, the families had to fight for that as well. Yeah. And um, wasn't uh, Clinton... Was it Clinton and Gore, or just Clinton who was also interviewed in private without a transcript? I think it was both of them. The 9-11 Commission had subpoena power. The families fought for this, and they rarely used it. They only used it two times that I'm aware of to get something from the FAA and something from NORAD. They had subpoena power, but but used something what were called uh, document requests, which could be and were ignored. Um, Alberto Gonzalez actually stonewalled the 9-11 Commission from getting certain documentation. Um, you know, a lot of emphasis was put on the August 6th PDB during the time of the 9-11 Commission, but there were several other PDBs um, that had even more information that we weren't even aware of. Um, I think it was written by Kurt Eichenwald. He wrote an article called The Bush White House Was Deaf to 9-11 Warnings. Um, and that's in the New York Times. Seems oh. like even some of the harshest critics of Bush in the mainstream media, you know, as harsh as that is, just to say that Bush was deaf to the warnings, it's still giving him the benefit of the doubt that he was Somehow it was just, oh, uh, he was just so out of the loop or out of it that he, oh, he was deaf to it, you know, instead of the more obvious situation is that he was a willing, like willfully ignorant, I guess would be a better way to put it. Now, um, the August 6th PDB, this is according to Kurt Eichenwald, 
quote, for all of the controversy it provoked is not nearly as shocking as the briefs that came before it. Now, these are things we don't have access to. You're talking about actual internal documents that were given to Bush. Presidential daily briefings, yeah. Yeah. I I think he received like 40 presidential daily briefings having to do with al-Qaeda before 9-11. You know, and we don't have access to that. That, The 9-11 Commission just glossed over those things. And that was an actual leaked leaked document way before the 9-11 Commission, as you mentioned. Exactly. But we don't know who leaked it. Yep. Now, one thing I want to get on record is what the 9-11 Commission's mandate was. This is from the 911commission.gov website. Uh, what is the Commission's mandate? The Commission's mandate is to provide a, quote, full and complete accounting, end quote, of the attacks of September 11, 2001, and recommendations as to how to prevent such attacks in the future. Specifically, Section 604 of Public Law 107-306 requires the Commission to investigate, quote, facts and circumstances relating to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, end quote, including those relating to intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies, diplomacy, immigration, non-immigrant visas and border control, the flow of assets to terrorist organizations, commercial aviation, the role of congressional oversight and resource allocation, and other areas determined relevant by the commission for its inquiry. Now, you were talking to me yesterday how debunkers say that the 9-11 Commission was not actually supposed to be an investigation. But here, here it is right here in the mandate that it says requires the commission to investigate. <laughs> um, so the, the fact that they were required to provide a full and complete accounting of the 9-11 attacks and omitted things like the whistleblowers that had pertinent information regarding the 9-11 attacks shows that the 9-11 commission failed in its mandate. Yeah. Uh, and remember now, the 9-11 Commission was sold to the world. The 9-11 report was sold to the world as the definitive account of the 9-11 attacks. And nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it's such an obvious whitewash. I mean, what, what struck me in originally, I didn't actually have a copy of the 9-11 Commission in my hands until maybe around 2009. And I already had a copy of the Warren Commission um from way back and i was immediately struck by how an investigation around the death of one man seemed like 10 times more comprehensive than the deaths an investigation the deaths of 3000 people and i just thought that was awfully strange that you know that it, the 911 commission was just so lightweight even just as a document um shockingly inadequate and and just you know Kind of just like a, um, you know, like a like a a book that you'd be able to read on a flight. It, it's kind of one of those books that you could pick up and probably read the whole thing in like five to six hours if you're really intent on doing it. Here's a big thing about the 9/11 Commission: the majority of the testimony from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged quote mastermind of the 9/11 attacks, something the 9/11 report is heavily based on, 
was gotten through torture and, quote, third hand passed from the detainee to the interrogator to the person who writes up the interrogation report and finally to its staff in the form of reports, not even transcripts. Waterboarding is illegal internationally and in this country. We've prosecuted. It does go back to the Spanish Inquisition. It is torture. When you waterboard Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times, I can pretty well safely say the man is almost brain dead. This is torture. Now, because of the latter, the 9-11 Commission decided to add a disclaimer to the chapters that are heavily based on detainee interrogations, quote, you know, torture. Yeah. The disclaimer says, quote, chapters five and seven rely heavily on information obtained from captured Al-Qaeda members. A number of these detainees have firsthand knowledge of the 9-11 plot. Assessing the truth of statements by these witnesses, sworn enemies of the United States, is challenging. <laughs> Our access to them has been limited to the review of submitted questions for use in the interrogations, but had no control over whether, whether, when, or how questions of particular interest would be asked. Nor were we allowed to talk to the interrogators so that we could better judge the credibility of the detainees and clarify ambiguities in the reporting. We were told that our requests might disrupt sensitive interrogation process, the sensitive interrogation process. We have nonetheless decided to include information from captured 9-11 conspirators and Al-Qaeda members in our report. We have evaluated their statements carefully and have attempted to corroborate them with documents and statements of others. In this report, we indicate where such statements provide the foundation for our narrative. We have been authorized to identify by name only 10 detainees whose custody has been confirmed officially by the U.S. government. Now, the 9-11 Commission became unhappy because the government's investigators were, quote, not asking the detainees the kinds of questions it wanted answered, end quote. Um, on August 6, 2007, the New Yorker reports that a former CIA official estimates that, quote, about 90% of the information was unreliable, end quote. Um, and it's not just from Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. Didn't they derive testimony from a few other Gitmo inmates who were also tortured? I don't know. I think uh, I, I remember reading something else about that. I, I can't recall the names off the top of my head, but um, yeah, we'll, well, we'll provide a link to that well, after we, we record the broadcast. Um, KSM's interrogations are mentioned as a source in the 9-11 report 200, 211 times. On June 15, 2009, the Associated Press reported that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said that, quote, he would make up stories in order to get them to stop torturing him. Um, on 8-6-2010, it is reported that, quote, four of the nation's most highly valued ter terrorist prisoners were secretly moved to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, in 2003, years earlier than has been disclosed, then whisked back into overseas prisons before the Supreme Court could give them access to lawyers. The Associated Press has learned, oh, it says the Associated Press has learned, the transfer allowed the U.S. to interrogate the, the detainees in CIA black sites 
for two more years without allowing them to speak with attorneys or human rights observers or challenge their detention in U.S. courts. Uh, I'm reading all of this from my Facts Speak for Themselves article. Yeah, and I recommend everybody check that check that article out. And I will I will say that I I do agree with whoever made that statement about it being challenging because I mean I'm sure it would be pretty challenging <laughs> to trust anything from someone who's you're torturing the shit out of. I mean I mean that's the whole that's the whole thing you always hear is that you can't get reliable information out of torture because the human mind will do anything it can to stop the pain i mean that's just human nature you're gonna say anything um to stop being drowned april 27 2009 a memo was discovered that talked about government minders intimidating witnesses these are people that went before the 9-11 commission and they came along with what are called government minders according to kevin fenton's article they quote answered questions directed at witnesses they, quote, acted as monitors reporting to their respective agencies on commission staff's lines of inquiry and witnesses' verbatim responses. The staff thought this, quote, conveys to witnesses that their superiors will review their statements and may engage in retribution. And they, quote, positioned themselves physically and have conducted themselves in a manner that we believe intimidates witnesses from giving full and candid responses to our questions. So just, I mean, it just seems like at every turn, um, you know, even down to the actual, you know, participation of witnesses giving testimonies that, I mean, they didn't even, they, they, they rigged the commission to such a large degree, but then they also, wanted to make sure the witnesses you know sort of stayed on the same page i mean as far as even putting minders on the scene so it just gets more and more ridiculous the more you actually examine the the 9-11 commission when you look at the process of the 9-11 commission when you look at the people who were involved in the 9-11 commission when you look at the whistleblowers that were ignored by the 9-11 commission when you look at um so many different things it's, it's absolutely impossible to come to the conclusion that what we got in the 9-11 report is truth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just because we, really we didn't really go over who some of these whistleblowers were, but give me um, some names of some of these whistleblowers that either testified to the 9-11 Commission but were omitted or were completely ignored entirely by the 9-11 Commission, weren't even allowed to testify. John M. Cole, Senior Counterintelligence counter Operations Manager for the FBI. Bogdan Dizakovic, former Red Team Leader at the FAA. Sibel Edmonds, Language Specialist, FBI. Now, Sibel did testify for three and a half hours inside a skiff because the families actually snuck her into a meeting uh, between the family members and the 9-11 <laughs> Commission. Um, that's the only reason I mean they were ignoring her request to testify Uh, there's someone by the name of Baruz Sarshar who is a language specialist at the FBI Uh, Melvin A. Goodman former senior analyst division manager CIA Gilbert Graham retired special agent counterintelligence FBI Colleen Raleigh retired division counselor FBI John Vincent Retired Special Agent, Counterterrorism, FBI. 
Robert Wright, um, who is a very interesting whistleblower, uh, veteran special agent, counterterrorism, FBI, Mark Burton, senior analyst, senior analyst, NSA, Mike German, special agent, counterterrorism, FBI, and Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, um, and Scott Philpot. This is just some of the whistleblowers that were either ignored or censored by the 9-11 Commission. And going and, along the lines of, of what we were saying um, earlier about how the FBI miraculously um, had all the names of all these hijackers so quickly after 9-11 that Anthony Schaefer has confirmed that, that in the Able Danger um, program that he was part of, that they actually had charts physically made um, by this private government contractor that it had pictures of most of these hijackers on a chart linking together people in these various terrorist networks, including Muhammad Atta himself. Right. I think actually Muhammad Atta might have been the only image. I mean, there might have been other hijackers, but I think Muhammad Atta was the 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 target, the the most prominent on that list. Yeah, which is and, notable in and of itself because he's supposedly the ringleader. Um, right. And we already knew. I mean, we are already keeping you know a, a close watch on him previous to nine eleven. I think. You know, one of the points of this discussion is that we could literally go on for hours just destroying and obliterating the legitimacy of the 9-11 Commission. Yeah. Uh, it's just that bad. And yet people believe what we were told. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, and I guess I, you know, I, I just always point people to the idea that, you know, why is it that you believe that Bush lied about all these other things and that manipulated all these other things and committed these crimes, but yet 9-11 remains sort of this sacred cow where, well, you know, they probably just, they were incompetent, but it probably is more or less how the Bush administration described it. I mean, that's, that's the part that I don't understand is why is it that that isn't under the same level of scrutiny? I don't know. And, and one of the things regarding, you know, incompetence, the Bush administration being incompetent, they wanted war. They, they got war. They wanted to make corp. They wanted to make billions for their corporate friends. They did that. They wanted to expand executive power. They did that. They committed so many crimes uh, during their time in office and re essentially remained Teflon coded throughout the entire thing. You know, they were anything but incompetent oh, as yeah. far as concerned. Yeah, I mean, they, they were able to, to, um, to increase executive power almost in every, every way imaginable. I mean, that, he, you that know. was one of the first things Dick Cheney did on the day of 9-11. He called his attorney, David Addington, to come to the White House, I think, and, and talk about executive powers and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I've heard I've heard uh, people inside the NSA describe it as David Addington um, was told by Cheney that whatever the line is, the line of illegality, like go all the way up to that line, you know, as far as as far as they could take it, and that's what they did. 
Almost immediately, Cheney directed his lawyer, David Addington, to prepare the case for the president to exercise his unilateral authority as commander-in-chief. Cheney says, I want you to tell me what powers we're going to need, the president's going to need, that he doesn't already have to respond to this calamity. And they decide that they're going to push every boundary they have. Addington at one point said, we're going to push and push and push until some larger force makes us stop. Um, and even past that line, too. I mean, I mean, oh, torture is not legal, but they tried to create legal loopholes to make it appear legal. And same with the bulk NSA data collection and the renditions and even Gitmo itself, you know, stripping away the POW um, protection of the Geneva Conventions and calling these people enemy combatants. You know, that was somehow devised as this clever way to essentially strip all the rights away of anybody they captured either off the battlefield or suspected terrorists. And, um, I mean, there are just so many other things, but that's, those are the things that come to my mind. Right. And as I was talking about earlier, um, Bush and Cheney refused to testify under oath. And I think there was a time when Dick Cheney testified under oath with regards to the Valerie Plame thing. And what's funny about the whole Scooter Libby trial is that you know (laughs) even if these people go through a criminal trial and are prosecuted and are found guilty the end of the day they could always be pardoned and while the bush administrate while bush didn't technically pardon him he commuted his sentence um, which means that he has a criminal record technically but he didn't have to serve any jail time and i thought that was amusing that dick cheney apparently was very furious at bush for not just giving him a full pardon um, after the fact and there's a lot of rumors now that you know when bush opened this library for himself um that he he somehow or that there's like no pictures of cheney or there's no barely any mention of him in the library and there's all these rumors that they had a falling out after they served in the white house together and i guess we'll never really know what you know what that dynamic was like we get information here and there about how Cheney was essentially keeping Bush in the dark and doing all these things, you know, behind his back. Like Bush didn't even know that the um, the person working under John Ashcroft was like extremely close to resigning. And then when he told Bush, Bush was shocked. But Cheney and David Addington knew about it, knew about this internal battle for months and months. Um, so yeah, there's the the rabbit hole goes so deep. I mean, there there's. You know, hope the I guess the only thing we can hope for is besides all the information and evidence that's already out there that destroys the official story, that there will continue to be leaks or or continue to be whistleblowers or or retired officials who'll come out and be like, Look, you know, this is this is what happened. Um, you know. So I I don't know. I think that's all the best thing we can hope for. Right. And and you know, as I was saying, they refused to testify under oath. And when Cheney testified under oath with regards to the Valerie Plame affair, it says, um, federal prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald famously declared in the Valerie Plame affair that, quote, there is a cloud over the vice president. Now, when he testified on, 70, on 72 occasions, according to the 28-page FBI summary, Cheney equivocated to the FBI during his lengthy May 2004 interview saying he could not be certain his answers to the questions about matters large and small. Um, Basically, he said he could not recall 
72 times. Sounds an awful lot like Ronald Reagan and the Iran Contrarians, and also like John Ashcroft during the um, Stephen Hatfield lawsuit, where I think John Ashcroft said, I don't know, over something like 88 separate times. I mean, these guys are just, I mean, it's the balls on them, you know, to do that. I mean, I just, it's, it's infuriating, but yet they've gotten away with it because they're not in jail. Um, but <laughs> there's a two tiered, uh, the tier of justice system in the country, one for us and one for the, the elite and the elite are hardly ever held accountable. Do you, do you want to say anything, um, in conclusion to, to encapsulate this all? Well, the point point of this whole thing is to to completely discredit the 9-11 Commission because people were sold the 9-11 Commission as a bill of goods as being the the definitive account of 9-11, and it simply is not. There's just so much information out there that didn't find its way into the 9-11 report. You know, if the 9-11 Commission and its report were a lie then people need to know about that and we can't allow 911 to continue to be to continue to be used as it has been you know because we were lied to about that day um and people need to step up you know and point out the ridiculousness of the 911 commission and of Philip Zelikow and so forth it just completely destroys the credibility. And the September 11th advocates on several occasions have re- have released press releases that quote-unquote question the entire veracity of the 9-11 report. And there, there's, such a, there's literally so much more about Philip Zelikow that we can get into. You know, he, he was instrumental in making sure the 9-11 commission didn't talk or didn't really investigate the NSA. Um, yeah, and that's a whole nother. I mean, we we could spend hours just talking about how many warnings, or or just how much the NSA was surveilling Al Qaeda and even specifically Bin Laden's multiple different phone lines um, throughout the late '90s, and somehow didn't pick up on this. Um, with, yeah, exactly. In the spring of 2004, quote, after finding that FAA and U.S. military officials have made a string of false statements to them about the air defense on the day of the attacks and have withheld key documents for months, the 9-11 Commission staff proposed a criminal investigation by the Justice Department into those officials. Uh, The proposal is contained in a memo sent by the commission team investigating the day of the attacks to Philip Zelikow, the commission's executive director. However, nothing much is done with the memo for months. A similar proposal will then be submitted um, to the very last meeting of the 9-11 commissioners who decide to refer the matter not to the Justice Department, but to the inspector general of the Pentagon and the FAA. Whereas the Justice Department could bring criminal charges for perjury, if it is found they were warranted, the Inspector General cannot. Now, according to John Azzarello, a commission staffer behind the proposal, Zelikow fails to act on the proposal for weeks. Azzarello will say that Zelikow, who has friends at the Pentagon, just buried that memo. 
Azzarello's account will be backed by the commission team leader, John Farmer. However, Zelikow will say that Azzarello was not party to all the discussions about what to do and that the memo was delayed by other commission staffers, not him. Zelikow's version will receive backing from the 9-11 Commission's lawyer, Daniel Marcus. So that's a, that's another thing. Uh, the, the deputy director of the 9-11 Commission was a guy by the name of Chris Kojum. He worked under Lee Hamilton, I think, during the, the Iran-Contra affair investigations, and he followed him all the way to the 9-11 Commission. Um, it's just the people that they selected um, for certain positions, just ugh, just like Philip Salakow. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if they knew that their loyalty ran deep enough that they would only go so far, you know, and stop, you know, before it actually got dangerous um, for any of the people that could be potentially held accountable. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating subject, and I recommend everyone go to your website. What is your website, John, where you can read your articles? There are a lot of them on 911blogger.com. There's a lot of them on yourbbsucks.com. But I primarily, history, historycommons.org, and also, I'm sorry, 911truthnews.com has a lot of my articles. Okay. So, and uh, also my book. <laughs> yeah, your book. And what is your book called? My book is called 911 Truther. Uh, the fight for peace, justice, and accountability. Uh, the foreword was written by Cindy Sheehan. Yeah, I recommend everybody check that out. And um, and one other resource that's still great is uh, C-SPAN. Um, ha- uh, C-SPAN.org has um, pretty much the whole 9-11 commission, as far as I can tell, online still. Um, and it also watch. has um, 9-11 Citizens Watch. Yes. Uh, which was a, a watchdog group formed on the first day of the, the 9-11 Commission. They essentially, they worked with the families and stuff like that. They had several press conferences uh, during the time of the 9-11 Commission. They are also on C-SPAN. They are also available at my YouTube channel, which is Gold9472. Um, a lot of things are available at my YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've taken some great clips from C-SPAN that, you know, I hadn't seen before and put them on, on YouTube. So definitely check that out as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks John for, for joining me on this episode of media roots. And, um, I'm sure we'll probably do this again in the future because there's so much more to talk about. Yep. Thank you very much for having me and thank Abby too.